Welcome to Hooplecast. I'm your host, Matt, and joining me are my co-hosts... Carol. Matt. Mel. And we're just a bunch of Hoopleheads. Yeehaw. Here to talk about the movie. Yeah. When was the last time we podcasted about Deadwood? Uh, Like, not the commentary, but... When did we do the series finale? Oh, so long ago. Like two years ago? Yeah, I'm gonna look it up right now. Oh, like two years ago. One year ago? Maybe. We had our series wrap-up episode on October 10th... Sorry, September 11th, 2016. 2016? 16? Really? Yeah. Can you believe it? Two and a half years ago. Almost three. Wow. And at that point, we didn't know there was going to be a movie. We, obviously, we had heard rumors, but we'd, we've heard rumors for a very long time. Yep. Almost 13 years is when the show went off the air. And almost immediately, rumors of a wrap-up movie or a series of movies started to uh, started to occur. And then, of course, it seemed less and less likely that it would ever happen. And yet, here we are. By some miracle. Someone at my work has told me that she has started watching Deadwood. And, and uh, I want to tell her that now, when you get to the end, you have to wait 13 years to watch the movie like I did. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> um, it always reminds me of when we were waiting for the start of the first Star Trek movie. And watching Deadwood movie at the beginning, it again reminded me of, of that time. Because, of course, Star Trek, the original Star Trek, went off the air. And then there was this period of time where it got more popular. And, uh, and people wanted, you know, something to bring back the series or whatever. And then they started saying, Oh, you know what? We'll bring it back, but we'll bring it back with a different cast. We're going to recast Kirk and Spock and McCoy. And everybody was horrified. And yeah. then, and then the movie happened, which seemed incredible and amazing at that. But you just didn't make movies or TV shows back then. <laughs> and it sucked. Yeah. But. If you look at the original movie and you think in terms of people having waited, I don't know what it was, 10 years or whatever, for it to come out, they do all these. I just sat there in the movie theater laughing because it was like, well, besides the fact that there were other things happening, but laughing at the screen because they would have these loving shots of, you know, every angle of the Enterprise and all of this, you know, and... And it was just like, talk about fan service. It was instead of having the guys in the shirts off, it was like loving pictures of the Enterprise from every angle. Enterprise porn. It was Star Trek porn. It really was. It was Enterprise porn. I wouldn't know anything about that. (laughs) (laughs) But then at the beginning of this, you know, when they, you know, they had the shot of, of Deadwood from up in the hills looking down on it, it was like, Ah, there it is, you know, and then gave each person their their entrance and kind of a close up and a, you know, a little bit, you know, there was definitely that fan service of, you know, hey, you get a chance to see this character all by themselves for a while and just drink them in, you know, it was the same kind of feeling. I I know this sounds like an exaggeration and possibly sacrilegious, but it felt to me like a religious experience watching <laughs> this watching this movie. It to to be back in the company of these characters and in this world to have new content after so long. It's like what I would imagine a Twin Peaks fan would feel getting ready to watch season three of Twin Peaks on Showtime. Uh, <laughs> the the better feeling as a Twin Peaks fan was when the missing pieces came out. Yes, because that was. 25-year-old footage that had never before been seen, and you're getting brand new footage, but everyone is as you remember them. 
So I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. And David Mills doesn't have his head way up his ass like David Lynch does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There may be an equivalent to that for this movie because I've heard that there's at least 30 minutes of deleted content. Nice. For the movie? For yeah, 30 minutes. Oh. Cut out makes, of the movie. That makes sense. That makes sense. Now, for a long time, I wondered what this movie was going to be like, if it was going to pick up exactly where it left off, or would it be 13 years in the future, what would everybody look like? The town, I imagined, if it was in the future, would look completely different, because it had burned down and like several times, and... So what what was it going to look like? like? How would the passage of time be marked? And that's what I was most curious about, and that's what I said at the start of our commentary episode that I released a few weeks ago. There was a fire in 1879, September 26, 1879. A fire broke out at Star Bakery on Sherman Street, and it spread quickly to Jensen and Bliss's hardware store, where it met eight kegs of gunpowder. Oh. And the explosions caused the fire to sweep quickly through the town, destroyed 300 buildings, leaving 2,000 homeless. Yikes. Estimated cost was, in today's dollars, somewhere between 45 and $55 million. Whoa. Wow. Obviously, they did not talk about the fire, reference the fire in the movie. Yeah. Which I thought was a little odd. They never ran into a fire, yeah, apparently. Well, uh, since it wasn't really a part of the story, per se, they probably... I mean, it also would have taken place 10 years before. Wait a minute. So the movie takes place in 89, 1889, right. and the fire was 10 years prior in 1870. Right. So, and the, yeah, the series took place just before the fire, right? Started in 1876. They had a dead fire, uh, but it only um, the only things that caught fire were uh, Cy Tolliver and Ro- um, uh, Robertson. No. Richardson. How dare you? <laughs> yep. It was the it was the Great Deadwood Fire, and it was just two people went up in flames, well, and that's why they're not here. That's terrible that you said that because, of course, <laughs> here in this podcast, we love Richardson. I know. Mm-hmm. Sigh, we didn't. But we had nothing against the actor. No, no, no. Was there any other actors missing? Major major characters? Um, not really. I think they got everyone. They got pretty much everyone, unless you really needed to see Blazinov again. Yeah. Right. The the. Theater people weren't there. Oh, they were right. gone. By, were they gone by the end of season three, anyways? No, no, Mm-mm. they were still there oh. because he was a friend of Hearst's. I mean, not a friend, but he'd gotten on Hearst's good side by his uh, remedy for the his back. Yeah, you know, so he was kind of getting information out of him and stuff. I mean, he was sort of a double agent kind of thing. Theater didn't work out, I guess. Well, you know those theater people, they travel. To tell us about the fire, Moira. Oh. Deadwood and Ashes. The Black Hills Daily Times. Friday, September 26th, 1879. We told you so. It had been the burden of our kicking during the past two years. The entire business center of Deadwood is in smoldering ruins. From Pine Street in South Deadwood to Chinatown, the fire fiend has taken a bite extending its jaws from up on the hill on the east of the gulch and up to Centennial Avenue on the west. Fireproofs melted like funeral pyres. The only improvements standing in the described burnt district are the bank vaults. All the printing offices were destroyed, totally and in part. The pioneer is an absolute loss. 
Some of the material of the news office was deposited in the sluice and covered over, which will probably be saved. The forms and a large portion of the body and display type of the Times office was saved, and the Times, which had succeeded in issuing a portion of its Friday morning's edition, will be gotten out in a somewhat demoralized condition, however, but it will be issued all the same. It is irrepressible. It is bound to give the news under any and all circumstances. The origin of the fire is not at this writing definitively known, but it asserted that it originated in the Empire Bakery on Sherman Street, a damned old fire trap that had been on fire a half a dozen times during the past year. During the progress of the conflagration, many startling and painful rumors of deaths by fire was put in circulation. It was reported that Mr. Jensen had gone down with the explosion which occurred in his establishment, that Molly Johnson had perished in her house while attempting to rescue the remains of one of her girls who died yesterday, that Major Reno, who had passed through all manners of fires, had yielded up the ghost in his room at the Welch house. But we are exceedingly pleased to say these reports, so far as we have been able to learn, are without foundation in fact. In half an hour after the outburst of flames, the fearful element was ravaging on Lee Street. The explosion at Jensen and Bliss's hardware store shot large firebrands through the rear end of the Welch house, and a solid wall of flame was rolling through the several streets. It was a fearful and awful exhibition of the power of the fire fiend. Many persons had barely time to escape in their night clothing, and narrow escapes were numerous and miraculous. All the hotels are raised to the ground. At one time, the water in Deadwood Creek was on fire, or at least was dried up by the intense heat. The loss is estimated at no less than two million dollars, and some estimate as high as three million. A large quantity of powder was stored in the city, and explosions are frequent. The Cuthbertson and Young's fireproof fell in at this writing, seven o'clock a.m., from the results of an explosion. The explosion of powder in Lake's fireproof was the cause of the destruction of the adjoining fireproofs. The shock opened seams in them, through which the flames insinuated themselves. From the time the fire alarm was sounded. Two o'clock a.m. to five o'clock a.m., the blaze had lapped up about everything in its route and was under subjection. The pitch pine buildings made an awful hot fire, so hot in fact that the firemen, with faces and heads covered with blisters, were obliged to abandon the hose cart to the fury of the flames, and it went up in smoke with the rest of the combustible material in the gulch. Some heartless spectators thought to profit by the calamity and attempted to buy up all the flour in camp. Some succeeded in getting more or less, but the fellow who approached R. D. Kelly was stood off in good shape. He was informed that no man could have more than half a sack, and that for three dollars and fifty cents, the regular price before the fire. Foundations were being laid in the burnt district four hours after the first alarm. County records all burned. Some of the sufferers were insured to a limited extent, but the insurance will not exceed eight percent of the loss.
My favorite part of that is when they say, let me tell you about some things that happened to some people during this fire. And now that I've told you about them, I can't say that any of the things were true. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, she says, let me tell you about the rumors that went around. You know, these were all the rumors that went around and none of them were true. I mean, yeah, but it was reported that Miss, Mr. Jensen had gone down with the explosion, that Molly Johnson had perished in her house trying to rescue one of the girls who had died. And now that I've said that, it's possible that th those things aren't true. <laughs> it's not true at all. Thanks, thanks yeah. for that. <laughs> well, I'm assuming that they were tr what they were trying to do was um, be specific about the rumors that people have been hearing and talking about, saying, okay, none of this stuff is true, so you can stop, you know, with the rumors about it. You know, but if you're writing that and that's your intent, you lead with, and as for the following rumors, which have proved right. to, to be false. Right. right. Uh -huh. Or have not been substantiated. These are the rumors. You don't say the rumor and then at the end of uh, people going, oh my god, this is what happened? Psych! And right at the end? That's, that's really shitty. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's terrible journalism, but we haven't seen a lot of really good journalism in any of these things. I mean, you know, it's a different, definitely a different era. I like the people who tried to buy up all the flour so they could sell it later when there was sure to be a shortage. <laughs> And the fact that the fire truck went up in flames. Yeah. That's... You say someone actually did die? There was one death? One death. I heard this on a podcast that the person who died may have been deaf and didn't hear the alarms. Uh. I found an article from the New York Times. It's titled A Mining Town in Ashes. And I'll just read this excerpt. Fanned by a light breeze and with nothing to contend with except a very inefficient fire department... Everything was at the mercy of the flames. Buildings were blown into atoms, and among the first things destroyed were the hook and ladder apparatus and hose carriage, leaving unscathed only a few feet of worthless hose with which to battle against the flames. The new waterworks were tried yesterday for the first time, were put to their full capacity, but with little success in subduing the flames on account of the scarcity of the water. There are probably about 2,000 people who are homeless, many are destitute, about 125 buildings Besides, 50 or 60 dwelling houses were destroyed, and while it is utterly impossible to get any definite figures regarding the loss, well-informed businessmen place it from $1.5 million to $2 million, which in today's dollars is between 40 and $55 million. The following were among the heavy losers. The First National Bank, 8000 uninsured, and Star and Bullock Hardware, 25000 loss, insured for 15000 hmm. Well, that's better than the 8% return that they were saying nobody would get more than. Yeah. So how long did it take to rebuild everything? And then was that the first big fire we just heard about? That's the first big fire. There was more? There were smaller fires ahead of that, but that, that was the biggest fire that... And actually, I can give you a, a photo. I'll put this photo in the Skype if I can. Will, let me, will it let me? That's the thing about that time period. I mean, fire was just so rampant. Because everything was built out of wood. Yep. Yep. Well, I can't. <laughs> In my show notes, I've included a photograph of what Deadwood looked like after the fire of 1879. So go to com, click on Deadwood on the menu, scroll all the way to the bottom to find the movie, part one, click on resources. That takes you to my show notes where I've got links to all my resources and photographs. Cool. The people of Deadwood promptly rebuilt their town this time using more brick and stone to provide resistance to the fire. Promptly, it says, they rebuilt. Mm. The disgraceful Al Swearingen rebuilt his gem theater from the ground up after the Great Fire. In 1879, the, the Daily News hyped it to be the finest theater building ever erected in Deadwood. Mm. 
1899, the Gems suffered another devastating fire, and Swearingen called it quits and left Deadwood for good. After the Gems' final demise in 1899, the newspaper had this to say, harrowing tales of iniquity, shame, and wretchedness, of lives wrecked and fortune sacrificed, of vice unhindered and esteem forfeited, have been related of the place, and it is known of a fact that they have not all been groundless. The Gem was one of the longest continuously operating entertainment venues in Deadwood, However, after its end, the gem was referred to in the press as the everlasting shame of Deadwood, a vicious institution and a defiler of youth and a destroyer of home ties. Mm. Okay. But uh, that was not the only major disaster that the movie ignores. There's also a very large, deadly flood, which happened in 1883. Four people died in that one. And I have Russell to tell us about that. Thanks, more for that last one. Deadwood's Deluge. Black Hills Daily Times, Friday, May 18, 1883. It is seldom in this country that we have to call the attention of the readers to damage done by water, an element that costs more money in this country to procure for legitimate purposes than in any country we know of. But nevertheless, it is our duty now to give such news. On Wednesday, about noon, the barometer took a downward tumble, and the knowing ones predicted a terrible storm especially as it was going down, down. Yesterday afternoon it commenced raining, not of a violent in the state July kind, but a steady pouring down that increased in volume as age was obtained. The snow that had been lingering in the lap of spring on the mountain tops soon yielded to the softening embrace and came rushing down, in rivulets at first, then torrents. At four o'clock, Dan Ruthburn telephoned from the Ten Mile Ranch at Whitewood that the snow was all leaving the mountains, and the water was higher by half than he had ever seen it, and for the citizens of Deadwood to prepare for a great flood that was coming. About this time, the Lee Street Bridge began caving in, as did also Sam Cushman's building adjoining. The old Oyster Bay house, on the opposite side, began settling, and then the citizens commenced to realise that danger was imminent. The Cushman's building began settling so rapidly that he moved out his effects, and to prevent the building falling and damming up the channel, the fire companies were ordered out, their hose attached on Main and Sherman Streets. And when all was in position, the building was saturated with coal oil and fired. When the order was given for the firemen to attach their hose, a number of them started on a run across the sidewalk in front of the Oyster Bay building. In an instant, the sidewalk fell with James Northey, engineer of the Homestake Hoisting Works, and Will Warner, son of the proprietor of the Times. At that point, the water was not less than 12 feet deep and running with the velocity of a cannonball through and under the bridge and between the innumerable posts that were planted everywhere in the creek. Hundreds of men witnessed their engulfment and a hundred hearts ceased to beat. It seemed that no man could pass through the maelstrom and live. But, in a few moments, they came up behind the bridge, swimming like ducks, and were soon on terra firma. The Oyster Bay building was soon ablaze all over, and the firemen had all they could do, raining as it was, to prevent other buildings from catching. In due course of time, it succumbed, and in the twinkling of an eye, it sank into the stream and disappeared. During all this time, the street was thronged with a dense crowd, each anxious to see what was going on, and, by their numbers, greatly retarding the work of the firemen. Tom Manning, fearing that there was a flood coming, removed his horses and carriages and his other traps from his livery stable and took them to a place of safety. The female seminaries that were so numerously located in that part of the city were found in a state of great confusion. 
The male friends of the lady students were on hand in force, removing their effects. Here a man with a trunk, there a half-dozen toting away a piano, through water waist-deep, and here a maiden all forlorn, in accents loud and bitter, piteously exclaiming, Where is my man? My trunk! Oh, my trunk! At 10pm, William Henley of Gayville telephoned the Times that within an hour, Blacktill Creek had increased in volume fourfold, and only just beginning to raise, all of the bridges gone, the roadbed fearfully cut up, and John Allen's dam washed out. Tom Manning's two-storey livery to stable then turned over, standing at an angle of 45 degrees, creaking and groaning as though in labour, and at last, with one grand effort, tumbled into the stream a mass of splinters. Hurrying around to Lee Street, we found the Oyster Bay building in the same fix, and at one mighty effort brought forth food for the flood. The torrent was irresistible and swallowed up everything that came within its greedy maw. The old hook and ladder house on Sherman Street that stood on stilts above the creek was burned down and as the torch was applied, Ben Gar was accidentally knocked into the seething flood above the buildings. No one who saw him fall ever expected to see his lifeless remains, but, strange as it may seem, with the tenacity that is born of desperation, he made a brave fight for his family and his life, and he came ashore opposite the Northwestern Stage Company's barn with a badly confused head and exhausted body. At 11 o'clock, the water increasing, the building of SF Jacobi on Sherman Street was undermined and came down with a crash. The debris, coming in contact with Butler's building on Lee Street, carried that with it, and in a few moments, nothing was left of either building. The bridges across the creek at Pine and Deadwood Streets both went out at about the same time, and by this all communication was cut off between the two parts of the city. There were many incidents that should become historical, but our lack of space, unfortunately, prevents us from mentioning them. We have space, however, to mention that Sam Cushman, with a spirit that has always actuated him, when seeing that his building, if left standing, would endanger the whole city, requested the mayor give orders that it should be burned. Frank Ikes was also unfortunate enough to be standing near the bank of the stream when it caved in, and, to be patriotic, he went in with it, and would have drowned had not a coloured man at great risk rescued him. We might mention in connection with these incidents that many important personages got wet inside by ringing in when heroes were treating an outside, when they became so officious that the firemen had to turn the hose on them in self-protection. To conclude, the mayor, marshal and members of the different fire companies are entitled to the highest praise for their indefatigable and untiring efforts to save the property of our citizens. And as an ado, we will say, the water is still raising and the end is not yet. The latest. At one twenty, the building on Lee Street, owned by Hank Beeman and lately occupied by Sagnio as a restaurant, fell and was carried off by the flood. This leaves but one building, the saloon, on the corner of Lee and Herman Streets. Kid and Ben's building is in evident danger. Forbes' barn, referred to above, has quit and Gilman's toll house was in such imminent danger that appeals for help were made to friends on this side who promptly responded to the call. At two o'clock, when going to press, Deadwood Street was being cut away at a fearful rate, the current making for the Vienna Bakery on Lee Street. The water seemed to come from Deadwood Gulch and was increasing in volume all the time. Very latest. At three o'clock a.m., the danger was so imminent that the fire bell was rang to call persons to the rescue. So from what I understand from this article is that we're, we don't have enough room to mention everything. And then they proceeded to mention everything. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
What was the part where they turned fire hoses on people? Um, so, from what I understand is that they intentionally burnt buildings to collapse them so that they wouldn't get, uh, to sort of create dams, I guess, to block Kinda like, the... like when they pre-burn a forest to stop the forest fire. I'm not sure that's it. I said something about it, they'd be in danger, so I'm wondering if, um, maybe if it fell, like, later or something? I'm not sure, but... I mean, the way they were talking, it says it would be it would be dangerous if it survived. So he had him burn it. Yeah. Either either way, it's going to be a bunch of rubble getting swept away, even if it's burnt rubble. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. I guess it's less. But I mean, if it survived and then it collapsed after the flood is over, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. The one that really got me was the um, the little. Oh, to answer Mel's question, my feeling is that this is so detailed partially because it's still happening and they're like giving you, giving people an idea of what's going on and what has happened so far. Whereas the other one was, this happened, yes, you know, this happened yesterday or day before. It wasn't so much a question as like just a comment on like, yeah. <laughs> just, the, just the way they do journalism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not like what we're used to. Um, yeah. There was that one thing that was kind of a, a you know, there was a, a backhanded, well, it wasn't even a compliment. We might mention in connection with these incidents that many important personages got wet inside by ringing in, whatever that means, when heroes were treating. And outside, when they became so officious, the firemen had to turn the hose on them in self-protection. Yeah, that's um, what I was, that part. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like they're saying that people who probably rich people um, were getting in the way. And, yeah, and they were up and, arms about the way that people were handling. Right. Like, why aren't you taking care of me now type thing? Yeah, perhaps right, right. maybe something like that or whatever. Ringing <laughs> in, I guess maybe ringing in, would that mean like they're ringing for help from inside? Like saying, you know, or something. I don't know. I was thinking like, well, is this spelled differently, but ringing, like ringing at your clothes. Like drying yourself? I don't know. It says it got important personages got wet inside by ringing in when the heroes were treating, and outside when they became so officious, the firemen had to turn the hose on them in self protection. It's it's a weird paragraph. It's a know. very weird paragraph, which I'm sure was very clear to people reading it at the time. I mean, there, it's very carefully phrased, and I'm sure it was done in such a way to let everybody know what they're saying without being called out for slander or something, you know, I mean, because, you know, but uh, now... Yeah, I, I can see two people the next day, like, looking at the paper going, I, I see what he did there. Yeah, it's like, oh, I know who they probably were. And, you, you know... Ever, do you guys ever think about, like, 100 years in the future that, like, people will be, like, talking about something that we said and they'll be, like, trying to decipher? I don't know. <laughs> trying to decipher exactly like what we meant by that. I don't know. I, I don't even. I can't even follow most things that people on the internet are talking about today. I don't even know what these words are. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of that, and and there's like when we were doing uh, the Freaks and Geeks podcast, there was a lot of times when there was a there were things from back in the '80s and all that I would hear, and I'd be like, oh, I wonder if anybody knows what you know, even has any idea what they're referring to there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, sometimes people do and sometimes they don't. I always yeah. wonder about, like, when people start talking about 
you know, oh, they drank the Kool-Aid. It's like, do people still know that that's a reference to Jonestown? Yeah. And, you know? They probably will. There's enough cult and true crime podcasts out there that everyone knows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it seems like people do still know that one. But, you know, there's, yeah, you wonder, like, how long will people understand what's being said? And this is a very local paper. You know, mm. it's a very Deadwood paper. I wasn't. The, which paper was this? This was the. Which one was this? This was. Maybe they had. This local. is the Black Hills Daily Times. Black Hills yeah. Daily Times. So it was very local. So yeah. they would have been. You know, there can be some like winks at. Well, we all know who we're talking about. Type thing. You know, mm-hmm. language and stuff too. Uh huh. Uh huh. Thank you, Russell. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Russell. Thank you, Moira. Both did a great job. Thanks to all those jerks. <laughs> that was uncalled for. Thanks, thanks, Matt. Those are two interesting articles. Oh, you're welcome. I, f- I found a website called newspapers.com, which is owned by Ancestry that I had never, he- I never heard of this website before. But you get a, you- I got a free trial, but I don't know how much it costs per month, but allows you to search old newspapers. That is you cool. can narrow it down by, by newspaper or by area, by year. Search in a keyword, keyword, it pulls up all the, uh, the full articles, the images, as, as much as they have in their archive, which is a lot. Mm-hmm. Really, really cool website. I wish I had had that when I started this podcast. I wouldn't have paid the Deadwood Library what I paid <laughs> them to pull articles for me. Oh. Although that was a good way to actually find some surprises of things that I, I was not intending to get that article, but it was on the back of another one that I had wanted. Yeah. Et, mm-hmm. et cetera. Uh, regarding the flood, the businesses on Main Street were above water level, therefore they were all right, but the flood washed out Chinatown on lower Main Street. After the flood, townspeople responded by building a containing wall along the creek bed. Hmm. So that's just uh, two natural disasters that happened in the 10 years well, the show was off the air. You could just have imagine those things happening. Let's talk about the what what actually happened in the movie. <laughs> Deadwood, colon, the movie was written by David Milch, directed by Dan Minahan, and it premiered Friday, May 31st, 2019, and it opens with a train entering the Black Hills. Ten years prior, it was a wagon train. Mm-hmm. So immediately, we know that we're in the future! Yeah. And we get a callback to the pilot with Jane, drunk then, she's drunk now, and she delivers the movie's first soliloquy. She says... Before eyes closed, for good and all, I'd once again see my Joni Stubbs, show her a sign of loving regret from Calamity Jane to her darling, and two at the grave of Wild Bill. Oof, I've a left-cheek-ass blisters for percolating son of a bitch. <laughs> she says it much better than I could. Yes. She also talks about farts. <laughs> I, um, yeah, the whole thing with, uh, before that, with the train rushing at you, and then, you know... Like, on the commentary, I had said, oh, you know, the horse is gone. And, of course, that seems like, especially with Hearst later on talking about 
modern modernity coming mm. in and, and all of that. Um, it definitely seems like a theme of the show. The train replacing the horse and, and yeah. uh, you think they were making that. allusion to the um, that movie there that the si- the silent movie that came out with the train rushing at people and they were like you know <laughs> <freaking> <laughs> yeah that, I'm not sure when that one came out the uh, Edison's I jumped off the couch when I first watched this uh, that scene <laughs> in this in this movie I was like oh that train it's coming right at me <laughs> <laughs> well you've always been a little behind the times Matt. Yeah, I have. <laughs> I believe that was 1896. That was that, yeah, that sounds right. This is 1889. Yeah, bit of an anachronistic train because the first passenger train to Deadwood did not arrive uh, until a year later, 1890. Oh. Oops! Oops! <laughs> Oops! Go, ghost train. Yeah. Well, it was a special train. Alma um, hired it. Yeah. Now the first. Now, there was a train that went between Deadwood and the town of Leed to connect uh, the various mines. That, w- that did exist in 1888. It was built. But the passenger service along that line wasn't provided until 1902. So even though there was a train, it, you couldn't be on it. Unless you were, like, I don't know, in the cargo hold. Yeah. With the That's coal or whatever. Alma, had, Alma got a private train. No, oh, they just tacked that on there? Maybe. She has she money. Those two- she let those two killers on it. <laughs> well, they would they would actually, I mean, people would actually have hire a private train, as in the locomotive and the whole thing. So maybe they did add a passenger car onto that just for a few people? No, it looked like a train station. It looked, yeah, when they arrived by train, yeah, like, was, they were at a train station. That was a passenger train. And yeah, there shouldn't have been, that should not have existed in, for another year. Yeah, Movie was, ruined. The Fremont, Elkhorn, and Missouri Valley Railroad. Yeah, it was a mistake. I hate this movie now. It's not a mistake. <laughs> no, it was... History yeah. is a lie agreed upon. <laughs> Did anyone have any follow-ups about Jane on the horse? It's a nice introduction. I like it a lot. Yeah. It's we're nice to talk about... Yeah, we're going to have to talk about what's going on with their relationship. Mm-hmm. Joni and Jane? Yeah. But yeah, we well, can talk about it a bit later. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think... It's a really good example of what we were saying before. That it really gave. It was the first one of the characters to say, "Okay, here's Jane. Here's her situation. I mean, she's still drunk. She's still in love with Joni. They've obviously been separated. She's coming back to Deadwood, just like we're coming back to Deadwood." And you know, so it was a nice, nice intro um, yeah. that gave us all the information we need in a pleasant way. Yes, ten years later. Thank you, Jane. Uh-huh. Although they do slap the year up uh, when we go into the town, and in front of the Grand Central Hotel, men are erecting a platform for the South Dakota statehood celebration. Which was... The Does that statehood mean, was November 2nd. Does that mean the state is becoming a state, or they're becoming part of that state? The state's like, becoming a state. Okay, so it didn't exist before that. No, I've got trivia about that, too. Uh. There were always more people in the southern part of Dakota of the Dakota Territory, which grew from about 10,000 in 1870 to about over 98,000 in 1880. By that point, according to the U.S. Census, northern Dakota was home to about 37,000 people. That meant that southern Dakota had the population necessary to join as a state on its own years before the northern part of the state did. The south thought the north was not reputable. Too much controlled by wild folks, cattle ranchers, fur traders... 
and too frequently the site of conflict with the indigenous population. Many attempts to form an independent state failed as the federal response was, you either do it as one large state, Dakota, or you wait until you have enough people on both sides to join, to be two separate states. On November 2nd, 1889, President Benjamin Harrison signed the papers to admit North and South Dakota as two separate states. And though North Dakota is generally considered to be the 39th state to South Dakota's 40th state, it's actually unclear which was admitted first because apparently the president shuffled the paperwork to sign them blindly. (laughs) (laughs) What? So. And that's why there's two Dakotas. So if they came in at the same time into the states, why did there have to be two Dakotas? Don't ask follow-up questions, but I don't have the information. <laughs> well, but from what Matt just said, it sounds like they didn't like each other. Oh, and yeah, they didn't. Um, the South looked down on the North. And there was a brief time when the South Dakota was like, hey, just call us Dakota and call them something else. But mm. North Dakota was, no, 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 no. We don't want to lose that identity. That's we're We're Dakota, too. Yeah, South Dakota's like we're South, we're we're Dakota, and up there's Garbage Town, <laughs> <laughs> the great state of Garbage Town. <laughs> I think it was actually in running to be the state of Lincoln. Oh, AKA Garbage Town. <laughs> <laughs> so North Dakota was almost Lincoln. I think that's what it said here in hmm. this Time Magazine article. Okay, so it's interesting. Mm-hmm. It says here, South Dakota wanted to simply be called Dakota, then the northern half would become either the territory of Pembina, which is a community right on the Canadian border, or else they thought we could be called the territory and ultimately state of Lincoln, as in the president. But Dakota had already become a trademark of sorts, a source of quality products like California raisins or Florida orange juice, and neither side wanted to give it up. I see. They should have just combined I wonder if there's still, like, to this day, animosity between the two states. Mm. Nobody knows. Nobody, none I, of us know. We don't know. I have know. no idea. I have yeah, no idea. are you from uh, North Dakota or South Dakota? Write in, listener, and tell us. Do you yeah. hate those people? <laughs> or do your relatives hate those people? We need to know. <laughs> Does it still smell like garbage in North Dakota? <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe North Dakota is... I've been reading a lot about their economy being really excellent lately. Oh. Yeah, a lot of people moving there. Problem is the winters. Tell us more. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Those are rough winters in the Midwest there. I tried to find a a photo of the Grand Central Hotel from the, like a screenshot from the show, because I remember Mm -hmm. it being made of wood. And then in the movie, it's brick. I know George Hurst took a sledgehammer to, like, the balcony at some point. Right. And or, the- or created his own balcony. Yeah. yeah. And then walked out onto the roof. Yeah. So I'm guessing at some point in the last 10 years, it was after he bought the hotel, he remodeled it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful looking building. Mm-hmm. The guys out front, when they're putting up the the platform, there's one guy with a real chalky white face. Did you guys notice this guy? No. no. Was he a ghost? I wonder if he's a burn victim. Yeah. Oh. That would be interesting if they had added people with, like, deep scarring and stuff just to kind of show that the town burnt down. <laughs> I'm going to put it, put his face in the Skype. You see this guy? Oh, my God. He looks like he's wearing makeup. Mm, looks like a clown. Yeah. Hmm. That's terrifying. That's interesting. 
The uh, production designer said that Deadwood was growing so quickly and our characters had matured, so we wanted to show the town's progress. We researched the look of the town and found that it was extremely cluttered with new signs, advertisements, and poles everywhere for the new electricity. Modernity had hit Deadwood, and you could see the growth clearly. It was also important for the original Deadwood audience to recognize the old town, so we made sure that we kept many of the important original aspects of the town's first design elements intact to honor the actors and the audience. So did they... So did none of the old set existed anymore well it's still it was still filmed at the same ranch that it was filmed at before but i imagine that buildings go up and down they really um hit the modernity a lot in the in the first bit there between the telephone poles and and the train and yeah and all that good stuff with uh hearst saying he's he's bringing in modernity and of course you got jane riding in on a horse yeah. But some things don't change, like Al's routine of waking up, shouting demands at Jewel. <laughs> Doc pays him a visit, and this is when we learn that he has, he being Al, has liver problems, and the Doc's recommendation is to forbear from spirits. Yep. Good luck Cir- with that. Cirrhosis, anyone? But the Doc's doing well. Last we saw him, he was, like, coughing constantly, and uh-huh. didn't seem, he didn't seem healthy. Nope. I th- I think the show getting canceled was good for him. I bet. I bet if uh, season four happened, he would have been killed off. Yeah, probably. You're probably right. <laughs> yeah, he looked better than than most of them. And uh, there's a lot of people with a death wish in this show. Oh, for sure. <laughs> At that train platform, Charlie greets Alma and Sophia. Those men who rudely walk between Charlie and Alma are Hearst men, and those are the men who will later kill Charlie. And we also meet Caroline Woolgarden, new character. Yeah, there was a lot of a lot of people online didn't like this new character, but I was fine with her. She just didn't strike me as the. She struck me as like just the way she carried herself as being quote unquote highborn. You know what I mean? I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure why she pretended to be upper class at first. <laughs> she never actually declares herself a whore. She's just suddenly amongst the whores. Um. Well, I mean, it's better. She's more likely to get a ride from a young woman of means, not yeah. declaring herself, you know, hey, I'm coming in to start hooking. Can right, but even her, first, even her first meeting with Al, she's still pretending to... Um, maybe she real. just hadn't committed to the role yet. No, I just got I got the idea that she was setting herself up as a, as, you know, pretty high-priced... Um, I mean, when, if you go into a brothel and you say you want to rent a room to the, <laughs> to the guy who runs it, you're pretty well saying exactly who you are, but she was setting herself up as someone who was in charge of herself and knew what she was doing. And how does it work? How does it work when you work in a brothel? Do you actually have to rent out your space and then I, do your work there? Is it kind of like you're renting out your office? I would guess that it's different depending on where you are and what time, you know, what time period you're talking about and stuff. I, I don't really know. That's how it works at, uh, at the gym. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it depends on, on the place and the, you know, I don't know. Well, it yeah. seemed like at the Bella Union where the, the women are more, well, I guess the, the appeal there is that they're cleaner, a little more posh. 
I'm surprised mm. she didn't go there first. But they were just kind of lounging around, playing cards in Johnny's enough, bed. Yeah. Either not enough customers or too many whores. <laughs> well, it was the middle of the day, too. Yeah, a little top-heavy with whores. I felt, yeah. I felt First like, world problems. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I felt like maybe Joni was taking in all the these like women because she was like, cause wouldn't Joni be the type to kind of protect all these women anyways? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Also, Joni, you know, when the boss is away, the um, the mice just do whatever they damn well please. And right. sounds like Joni, you know, it's like, oh, the boss is upstairs. I don't know what she's doing. Yeah. You know. And it well, looks like Joni was pretty much out. You know, she was not paying that much attention to business. And the the sign on the on that place. Uh, it was like still a temporary sign. It, it was like yeah, just a cloth. Like did Sai like a canvas, Did they even mention uh, what happened to Sai? No, no, they didn't. They didn't talk about Sai. I guess so there was like, a line about him, and it was cut. Okay, he's just like recently out of the picture because the sign that says it's her place is pretty new. Does it still say Chicago style girls? Are you looking at it right now? <laughs> I don't. I don't remember. Hmm. Deep dish ladies. <laughs> Here's another uh, fun excerpt from this interview with Maria Caso, the production designer. During the series, I found out from the Deadwood Museum supervisor that they called the brothels cat houses because each girl owned a cat to help her deal with her depression and drug use. I was oh. told that each brothel had hundreds of cats inside. So I asked well. David Milch and Greg Feinberg if they liked the idea of having cats in the brothels. They said yes, but told me we could only afford one cat. Oh, <laughs> Did we see a cat? No! Guys, oh. this show could have been improved like a hundred times by having like <laughs> cats in every scene. Right? If if They're hard to wrangle, though. Yeah, apparently cat wrangling is pretty awful, but, but that would have made up for Richardson not being there. Yeah. <laughs> Hundreds of cats. He blew up into hundreds of cats. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Love it. And if you thought that the name Caroline Woolgarden sounded made up, the actress's name is Jade Pettyjohn. <laughs> oh! <laughs> there you go. And that's not the same actress who played Sophia in the series, by the way. Uh, yeah, I didn't think so. What if Richards, Richardson was a uh, just a big pile of cats the entire time? Matt, you can't let this go, can you? No. <laughs> The Bullet Clan is getting ready for the statehood festivities. Seth and Martha, they have two daughters and a son, which tracks with reality that Seth and Martha in real life, they had three kids, Margaret, a.k.a. Madge, Florence, and Stanley. Mm. Aww. Did Stanley ever become anything? Uh, An adult male at some point. (laughs) He didn't get trampled by a horse. No, Seth and Martha did look after their orphan nephew for a time, so I'm going to assume that that is where the inspiration for William came from. Yeah. Partially. Uh, which is weird that they made no reference in this movie to William. Right. Well, it's been ten years. It's the past. They've moved on. Yeah. yeah they got replacements. <laughs> they got newer, improved models. Yeah. <laughs> At the statehood celebration, Mayor E.B. Farnham introduces the visiting senator from California, George Hurst. Do you guys find that George Hurst hasn't really aged a day? Like, I find he still looks the same. Yeah. Pretty much. Right? I, f- I find that he's the least aged out of all of the actors. I don't know. Jane wasn't very different. Jane looked the same, too. Yeah. Jane looked the same. Yeah. Um, 
I would have thought Alma looked the same, except they did that flashback. Yeah. But no, she, looked she looked very good. close. Yeah. If it hadn't been yeah. the, for the flashback, it would have. Seth, Seth is looking rough. <laughs> <laughs> Though he looked better near the end of the movie. You know what? Probably yeah. makeup them up a bit, too, to kind of make them look older. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't be at all surprised. Because, I mean, they were living a hard life. Right. Like, yeah, whenever you look at pictures of people back then, they always look to be so much older than you think they would be. Like, I was looking at um, colorized pictures today, and you guys know that famous picture of that mother during the Dust Bowl? She's holding Mm -hmm. her child. Yeah. Yeah, she was only 32 when that picture was taken, and if you look at that picture, like, her face is really lined. Just, like, really, she looks much older than 32. Mm. I mean, yeah, she was combination of the weather yeah she would she would have been out in that that the sun and the wind right all the time right and when you have like a bajillion children (laughs) to take care of that's another added stress you know and you're fighting dust storms all the time yeah Speaking of those flashbacks, it's my understanding that they were added in later to help audiences who are not familiar with the show, like, understand what was happening. Because for some reason, they thought that this, that the movie should stand separate from the show, so that a person who had not seen the three seasons of the TV series would be able to follow it, as though anybody would want to watch the movie if never seen the show. Like, I don't, who is this person? Yeah. Yeah. They they certainly didn't write it as something that somebody the show could follow. Uh, but apparently that was the intention. Mm. Um, it's heavily I, connected with the show that it, came it, before. It, it's exactly, yeah, it's basically a continuation of the season three finale. Yeah, yeah, I mean, part of me feels like that may have been one of those yeah, yeah, it'll be it'll be easy for people who don't understand. We're going to write it so people yeah, yeah, we will. No, yeah, I think it was exactly like that. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that storyline and everything else is not conducive to people who hadn't watched the series to knowing what's going on. And even if you could follow it, you wouldn't care. You would not be right. emotionally invested in anything. Oh, yeah. Even yeah. if it made total sense. Oh, yeah, I get it. Yeah. She tried to kill the guy, and now he's back. He, they faked off, you know, they faked it yeah. with this other girl, and now he knows who that it's really her, and he's mad about it. Like, well, yeah, it that's, have- it's so, like, you'd understand it, but it would be so surface level. Yeah, it, it, have, it would not be appealing for you. Yeah, yeah it the whole not the emotional resonance at all. Yeah, part way. of the reason this works so well is that you know the characters so well. Yeah. While Hearst is giving his speech in a bedroom somewhere, I think it's at the Bullock Hotel. Saul is imploring a pregnant Trixie to rest. Don't show your face outside. Lemonade with ice chips on the way. But as her wagon goes by, Trixie remembers when poor Ellsworth was brought into camp, shot through the head by one of her goons. She runs to the balcony. She berates Hurst for the deaths of Ellsworth and the prostitute Jen. And they have a, a fun little exchange as Al and Alma and Charlie and all the others watch. When Saul brings her back inside, Trixie has pain serious enough to send Saul to fetch the doc. So why did, why did Hurst all, all of a sudden think that she's the one that shot him? Like sh- she could have just been a friend of the, the horror that they that got killed because that horror shot him or like or did he like literally just have a flashback and he like oh that's the girl i think he recognized her yeah hmm. i mean she did shoot him yeah but he only saw her for a second 
<laughs> Mostly saw her crotch. No, her her boobs. Her lavage. She showed him her crotch. Oh, did she? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, she gave him a full picture of. Yeah, she sure did. <laughs> she knew how to distract a guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, she didn't know how to shoot real well. No. Oh. But I, I did enjoy that whole exchange, even though I was like, Trixie, you stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just, I was like, Trixie, come on. No, 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 no. She just can't help herself. Well, yeah. Everybody. I mean, but you blame her, really? Like, she's. Everybody feels helpless in the in the face of George Hurst. Usually. Right. You can't do much to him. And that's, right. that frustrates everyone. Yeah. I do blame her for it, though I do realize that she also has hormones like going nuts, yeah. and and a lot of it has to do with her guilt over Jen. Yeah. But getting herself killed is not going to help Jen. It's just going to make Jen's death a totally useless exercise. Yeah. You know, it's it was just it. Ah, stupid. But it's just like speaking up. For people, you know, like that's it's such a hard thing, especially when you're fighting against people who have a lot of power. Mm-hmm. It's almost like it's almost useless unless, as we see later on, the whole town kind of gangs up eventually. <laughs> then it's a little bit, you know, mm. a little bit more manageable. But but this yeah, definitely her personality. Oh Actually, yeah, she is a firebrand. <laughs> she will. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not surprising that she did that at all. At all, at all. I I wish Saul had told her this is you know George Hurst coming into town. Great weekend for a getaway. <laughs> Let's just get away. <laughs> Let's go see your parents. I don't know. She doesn't have parents. Well, Let's just get obvi- out of town. Obviously, she's so close to. I rented an Airbnb in Leeds City. Let's go there. <laughs> I don't know that at that that would have had to probably be a couple weeks at least earlier because I mean maybe. The train would be okay, but travel was not an easy thing in those days. It was very uncomfortable and bumpy and difficult. And, dangerous. dangerous. True. And, and dangerous. And her being that far along in her pregnancy. Maybe lock her in a room in the Bullock House somewhere <laughs> way at the edge, edge of town. Yeah. yeah, that would have been a little better. I did love their little apartment. Like, I love the tin ceilings. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I noticed those tin ceilings both times. I was like, oh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, I was looking at tin ceilings for a while, and my son doesn't like them at all. (laughs) I love It could have been the angle of the shot, but it looked like the ceiling was too close to the ground. It didn't look high enough. It it did, yeah. For for having it, usually, because I think usually in older buildings, the ceilings were always quite high. I didn't notice the ceilings. Why are you guys looking at ceilings? It just felt claustrophobic. <laughs> it, shiny and it was it was the angle of the shot, and I think because the angle was from down up, it it looked short. But maybe that's why it was that angle because it was a low ceiling, and they had to. I don't know. And but I thought it, this was the Bullock Hotel, actually, yeah. which I have facts about. We'll get to that later. For yeah, one thing, I it's haunted. Think- <laughs> we'll get to that later. <laughs> You're all doomed if you go there. I, yeah, I think I think Bullock was in the. Um, I mean, the Seth, uh, Saul, and Trixie were in the Bullock Hotel. Yeah, it was. Um, I don't think um, Hurst was in the Bullock Hotel. I doubt that he would ever. Set no, foot in he he was in his own hotel. He bought exactly. Evie's hotel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. At yeah. one point, somebody said something about him being in the Bullock Hotel. 
that was that was Saul and Trixie. Yeah. Let's go over to the Grand Central Hotel because we get a reunion between Seth and Alma. Yes, we do. Oh no, sorry, no. There, she's not over there. That's where she she's was for the, the first three she's, seasons. She's at she's, the Bullock Hotel because later Seth is like, "Thanks, Charlie, for recommending that my former lover be installed at my hotel." And he's like, "Yeah, yeah whatever." Yeah. No, they go. Yeah, they go to his hotel, right. which is very nice looking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I'm, I could just give you my facts right now All about right. that hotel. Okay. So Seth and Saul's hardware store was destroyed in the Great Fire of 1879, or at least it was greatly damaged. It was rebuilt with wood. A brick warehouse was built behind the store. In 1894, the business was destroyed by another fire, and then rather than rebuilding it for a third incarnation, Seth decided to construct a hotel. Hauling in native pink and white sandstone from Andrews Quarry in Boulder Canyon, the work of building the Italianate-style hotel began. When it was completed, boasted a restaurant that could seat a 100 people and offered such delicacies as pheasant and lobster. The large lobby featured red velvet carpeting, brass chandeliers, oak trim, and a Steinway grand piano. Upstairs, the 63 rooms were furnished with oak dressers and brass beds. Each floor had a bathroom and a library and a parlor were located off the balcony. In no time at all, the hotel was the most sought-after luxury hotel of its time. In 1900, a small building that adjoined the hotel in the south was obtained by Bullock, which served as the gentleman's bar. The cost was over a million in today's money. It had steam heat and indoor plumbing. Wow. Seth Bullock died in the hotel on September 23rd, 1919 at the age of 70, and he haunts the hotel today! He's very concerned about 1993. <laughs> yes. So I posted this in, in our Facebook group, but there's an Unsolved Mysteries where they go to uh, Deadwood. And I'll just, I, I did a little transcription here of, of the scariest part of the, of the Unsolved Mysteries. Norm Stevens. I can't read it as well as uh, Robert Stack. Norm <laughs> Stevens, a slot machine supervisor at the hotel says that one morning he was working in the basement when a mysterious shadow fell across the wall. It was the figure of a man, but when Norm turned, the shadow vanished. A few weeks later, operations manager Joey George had his own ghostly encounter. He claims that when he walked by the bar after closing time, all of the stools were lined up in a row. Joey stepped into the office, then heard unusual noises behind him. He returned to the bar. All of the stools had been moved. And then there's a hilarious scene where um, a psychic from England named Sandy Bullock has a, like, plays telephone with a ghost Native American and Ghost Seth Bullock. I don't know why Ghost Seth Bullock couldn't tell this other guy, the psychic himself. He had yeah. to go through an intermediary, a ghost Native American. It was very strange. It's very funny. <laughs> I just kind of wanted, I wanted the Native American guy to, like, kind of uh, fuck up what Seth Bullock had told him so that he could. And that's probably why he got the year 1993. That's why the prediction's not right, guys. Yeah. <laughs> And at the end of the segment, now about Seth Bullock's dire prediction. We just have to wait and see. Curiously, in 1993, there are plans to raise the gambling stakes for the present $5 limit. Now some fear that this will introduce a new criminal element in Deadwood. Perhaps that is what prompted old Seth's urgent warnings. <laughs> That's what he's occupied himself with, like, in the afterlife? Yep. Do we do we ever find out what uh, what happened in 1993? Did they did they did they raise those gambling stakes? I have no idea. <laughs> was it was it world changing? Somebody stubbed their toe in the bar. 
That's what it was. If when I visit Deadwood, I'm definitely staying at the Bullock Hotel. Yeah. Now, now, keeping my eye out on those bar stools. Are you going to bring your, your ghost uh, finding apparatuses? <laughs> your ESP readings? <laughs> it's actually a hotel from the future because just like the train, this hotel wasn't built until later. It wasn't built until 1894. There you go. And the movie's yeah. 1889, so. Who was it that owned the Fairmont? The Fairmont. Fairmont Hotel? I was, don't know. Didn't we, didn't we mention the Fairmont? I mean, no? No. Okay, never mind. I'm looking at a map of Deadwood, and it's catacornered, the historic Fairmont Hotel, and I thought I remembered hearing it in the movie or something. Um, I've lost track of who owns what hotel, what the name <laughs> is, you know, who owns which hotel, but it's catacornered <laughs> from the Bullock Hotel, so it kind of where, I guess, where the gem would be? There's a cornucopia of hotels in Deadwood, so it's easy to get confused. Yeah. So, anyway. Anyway, Seth visits Alma as she's unpacking, and they have some sexy flashbacks. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I am all about this. I love me some Alma. I wonder if they uh, experienced those flashbacks in unison together. (laughs) (laughs) They had a mind meld. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but that's that's about all the sexy uh sexy times we get. So Well, there's a little bit of, you know, in the the dance, the end. Yeah, I mean, yeah a little bit. Not enough. There. Yeah, I mean, not a- I'm not saying I want him to completely throw Martha off a cliff and, and run away with Alma, but if he did, I, w- I would be in favor of it. Yeah. <laughs> I would I am saying that. Ah, <laughs> uh, you're a bad person, Matt. Terrible. <laughs> Just bad, bad, bad. Of course, uh, Alma's going to be a widow for all time. Well, you don't know what's been going on with her in San Francisco or wherever she was. Yeah, she's probably got several suitors. <laughs> she's a rich widow. I mean, uh, people were pretty uh, pretty obvious about their gold digging back then. Mm. I'm sure there have been guys trying to get a hold of her for a long time. Hearst wants to buy Charlie's claim so that he can run telephone lines across the land, bringing the future to America. Charlie wants Seth's opinion. Why should uh, I sell my land that I've worked my entire life to acquire and maintain? And uh, Seth notes Hearst's vile nature and offers to pay Hearst a visit, but Charlie's like, nah, what am I, an infant? No, I'll carry that water myself. Yeah. Yeah, having backup would have been a good idea, Charlie. Also, I bet Seth feels bad about advising him not to sell. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I have no doubt. Yep. I mean, they mention his foul nature at the same time that they're, you know, it's like, that was kind of confusing to me. It's like, why? You know this guy's horrible. You know this guy kills people when he doesn't get his way. Yeah. So you're advising him to keep a hold of his land while at the same time saying, hey, remember, he does kill people. Yeah. You know, it's. It's maybe weird. he expected that he wouldn't do that now that he's a senator. Maybe. <laughs> they thought he had much more to lose at this point. Yeah, well, and he didn't know at that point that uh, he'd been threatening Al over Trixie. Right. right. Putting aside her murderous nature and the way that he is so self-absorbed and can never concede a point... A an obvious compromise would be for Charlie to say, "I want to keep my land, but I'll let you put your telephone poles on it." Right? Yeah, that would have been. That's like a. It's a. a, com- it's a, a compromise. More modern, 
Yeah, it's yeah. a more modern way of looking at it. And I mean, Charlie could have even proposed, like, okay, you like pay me money, like a hundred a month or something, whatever, yeah. for like ten years, a contract. Like you can run your stuff and and use the land, but I get to keep it under my name, and then I don't feel like I'm selling out what I worked my entire life for. But you get really what you want, so that's the fine compromise. But of course, you know he's not. I know that Hearst is not that kind of person. Like he doesn't think like that. It's like I want it. It's mine. Give it to me. Yeah. Yeah, also, I'm sure he had other ideas for what he wanted to do on that land besides run telephone poles across it. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, I kept thinking right away, just a, you know, all you need is a right away across the property for the telephone poles. And it seems like a deal should be able to be reached. But Mm -hmm. then again, it's Hearst that we're talking about. Caroline Woolgarden introduces herself to Elsewhere Engine. She's come to rent one of his many fine rooms. <laughs> but their conversation is cut short by the arrival of Hearst, who is angry at being made to look an incompetent this morning in the thoroughfare. And Al dimly recalls when Hearst was shot by a nameless whore. And this is when Hearst says, you know, I know about your whole whore switcheroo, but I'll let any other deception and any counteraction, you know, I'll put all of that aside if you just back my purchase of Charlie's land. What's he mean back my back his purchase? Like, convince Charlie Utter to sell the land to me, and then oh. we'll just ignore this whole whore shooting me, you covering it up thing. Mm. Yeah, the, he didn't really wait for Al to give him an answer on that. Yeah, didn't want to stick around. No time. Sure. No time. Well, I mean, he he approached Charlie Utter and then shot him for saying no, instead of letting Al try and yeah. get him or anything else. I mean, he was just it's very... Charlie stood up to him. Yeah, Charlie said some things to him, so he probably just... Took it personal. Yeah, wanted him dead. Such a such a sensitive little fellow yeah. at Hearst. Snowflake. <laughs> Doc and Aunt Lou are assisting with the birth of Trixie and Saul's baby, little Joshua Star. Yeah. I was so happy to see Aunt Lou. Yeah. <laughs> I remember in commentary, you just, you just about flipped. But I like Aunt Lou, the hi- like the historical Aunt Lou, more than the show Aunt Lou. And mm-hmm. we talked a lot about her in our series wrap-up episode. Goodbye right. and fuck you. But, <laughs> she, you know, former slave, um, goes to Deadwood, be- you know, becomes a ranch owner, famous cook, did so much, accomplished so much. Real delight seeing her again. She- again, she doesn't have much to do this movie. Yeah. Do you think she stuck around in Deadwood or... Did she leave with Hearst and come back? Because they don't have any scenes to go, which I think is like a missed opportunity. If she had stuck around in Deadwood, what would oh. she say ten years later to George Hearst? Right. Feels yeah. like a missed opportunity. I, I assume she stuck around in Deadwood because she kind of separated from him anyway, hadn't she? She felt like he had murdered her son Odell. Right, right. That's what, yeah. And so I would assume that she would not go with him. Also, historically, she's got stuff that she did in Deadwood, so... Didn't didn't she? Don't remember all of the details. There's, there's so many cool people that historically had really fascinating, you know, lives and stories. They make up stuff for sometimes using people's names, and all, often it's not nearly as good a story as the one that really happened. I always find that amazing. Why did they yeah. do that? 
1883, she had opened an establishment called the Rustic Hotel in Sawpit Gulch. She sold the hotel two years later and purchased a ranch between Sundance and Beulah, Wyoming. There she raised horses and cattle for 20 years. Okay, hmm. so she left Deadwood. Yeah. So she was just visiting and happened to be around when Trixie was giving birth. She <laughs> yep. came back for the statehood celebration. Yeah, whoopee. Anyway, Trixie gives birth. It goes well. In the thoroughfare, Charlie refuses to drink with Jane. He says, fuck that, go find your girl. So she does. She goes to the Bella Union, and there she finds Joni Stubbs ensconced in female companionship. Joni's bitter that Jane left her to go and see the world. Or is how Joni believes it. The game shut down when she left the table. Did you want to talk about Joni now? You, sure. Mel, it sounded like you, or maybe it was Matt, implied that you had some extra thoughts about her. Just not sure about what happened, because it sounds like it sounds like they were fighting, and I don't know about what, and then Jane left, and then, I don't know, their relationship seems to pick up really quickly in this. I'm not sure what they're fighting up. Right, it must not fighting have been about over, much. I'm not sure what they're fighting over, and then I'm not sure what they made up over. <laughs> right, well, I don't know, it's just, I guess, Jane kind of sweet-talked her into mm. getting back together, but I don't know. It's yeah, just... A little bit vague, I guess. Yeah, I think that was on purpose. I mean, it sounds like it was a while ago. And Jane, it sounds like Jane had either an opportunity to go someplace or something. And uh, who knows? I mean, Jane did do a lot of traveling and stuff. I didn't think it was about something that happened before because she came in there all smiles and ready to see Joni. And then when she saw her, that's when, when it turned. So I thought she was angry about her current situation well i got the feeling like i mean she asked whether she was busy so she knew there was a possibility but i got the feeling that she the smiles was you know i'm hoping that you know everything's going to be okay between us i'm going to put on a brave face that's how i interpreted it and then and then here she was in bed with a couple different people which she was still willing to like okay but Joni definitely got the idea that she was, you know, I mean, she did throw in a snide comment about the others. And, you know, it's, it's kind of typical people, you know, who have baggage fighting with each other about stuff, you know. I'm going to guess it's as simple as Jane got drunk and went out of town and probably does it a lot. And the more that Joni's left alone, the more Joni spirals into shame and depression. Yeah. Mm. And, and that comment about, you know, like, oh... You think everything's going to stop? Like, I'm not going to get companionship or anything just because you left. I'm mm. supposed to, you know, just stop my life till you decide to show back up. Yeah. Which is a pretty common problem with somebody who, I mean, I don't know if the comment made at the very end where they talk about France. I, I had looked up, because I mean, I knew that Jane went off with like the Wild West show and stuff, and I wasn't sure what year you know when that was whether that's where she was before but it looks like that was where she went after this would have taken place so the indication being that she was going to take Joni with her to go visit Europe and stuff because mm. she did end up traveling all over the world on the outskirts of Deadwood along a river and under the pines Hurst pays Charlie Utter a visit Hurst is willing to go 500 above his original purchase offer that's $4,000 cash 
Charlie explains that his father taught him the value of investments, but he's become partial to special feelings regarding this piece of land, so he declines the offer. Thank you for your time and attention. This is the key scene of the movie. Everything turns on this yeah. rejection that Charlie has toward the offer. Yeah, Charlie also has to get nasty about it, you know? I mean, understandably, because Hearst's horrible and has done terrible things to everybody. And it was this land that he was panning for gold in, in the first season, or...? No, that was Ellsworth. Yeah, that was Ellsworth. <laughs> we corrected you on the commentary. Every time. Every time. Yeah. But now you, you won't, now you won't get as confused because Hearst killed both of them. Yeah. Well, that that's confusing, too. They're both, they both met the same end. And in, <laughs> and in similar ways. Yeah, but yeah. now whenever you talk about it, your answer will be yes. <laughs> so as did we ever... As long as talk about panning for gold. Yeah. Did we ever see him purchase land or anything in the original series? And if so, what did he use the land for? No, I don't remember that. I mean, I know he started his postal business. Yeah, I remember but that. But that was in town. I don't know what this land was about. Mm. He doesn't seem to be using it for anything. Well, he was talking about, you know, when he gets older, work. That's what Seth Bullock was saying something about him when he gets older, working it. So I guess this is, was like his retirement plan. Yeah, I guess. To, you know, go live live out there and, and work it for however working, whatever working it would mean in that particular case. And in Charlie's defense, he didn't get nasty until Hearst got nasty. Uh, I will read this uh, exchange. Okay. Hearst says, My experience over time has come to be customarily, I am he who starts a negotiation, names its finish too. Right. To which Charlie says, maybe getting motherfucked this morning in a thoroughfare by a woman in the bargain has somewhat got your back up. Yeah. Not the accolade you look for, out your return to fucking camp. Yeah. Smack. And her says, proffering that assessment, sir, is hardly your proper bailiwick. Far as that, I went and proffered it in any fucking way. Yeah. Like, just, like, he said thank you, you know what? I thought about it, like, it, my daddy said it's a good investment, but, you know, I'm, I've realized that I've come to be partial to this land, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep it, but thank you for your time and attention. Right. Hearst just has to keep on going. Right, because he's determined that it's gonna be his way, or no way at all. That is Hearst. I love how the camera pushes in on Hearst and moves around his head, sort of like focusing on him. Like you, you can really see how his thoughts are just roiling and how he's like menacing. He's not moving. He's perfectly still, but like within internal, like, like he's on fire. Like, yeah, I love the camera work. It's really cool. It's so simple, but it's dynamic. Also, I liked. Speaking of the camera camera work, I liked when they first showed Hearst. They well, like one of the first Hearst shots, they showed him through the um, photo lens upside down. I thought that was really clever, mm. and I liked when the um, all the the banner was coming down, like after the whole ceremony, and mm. it was just falling in the mud. I mm. thought that was really telling too. Mm. I wondered if that. Um, the banner going in the puddle was like a callback to an earlier shot in the series. Or if that's just something I've seen in something else. I don't know. Having that shot at that point and really bringing it through also set up the, uh, the later thing after the wedding when Hearst is 
um, in handcuffs, and they and he says, "Smile, Mister Hurst," and takes a picture of him in handcuffs. Yeah. yeah, that sets it up that you know you aren't saying since when did they have you know photography? Because you you really pointed out the the guy, the old fashioned photography that that they had at the time, mm. and reminded that this guy is everywhere. <laughs> He's like Peter Parker. He's the precursor to what we have now. <laughs> During the uh, exchange between Hearst and Charlie, you could see men in the background removing timber from some kind of conveyance. They're erecting the telephone poles. Yeah. And- I love how like he's like so confident that this is going to happen, that he's just like right... Like, right at that limit, like, of, like, you know... The, he waited just, that long. Yeah, he's not even waiting. He's just erecting telephone poles and, like, oh, yeah, like, I'll just, like, I know I'm going to get this land, so I'm just, you know, I'm just going to, like, sit around and wait till I get it. Mm-hmm. So we'll just start putting up these uh, telephone poles, like, here. Uh, right, yeah. right where you... Get, sorry, you're going to have to move. Um, Excuse me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I just need, like, just, just need to sign this. Uh, put initial here. Dot here. Uh, uh, who are you? It's so presumptuous. What's happening? Oh yeah, but that's been—he's been consistently that way all the way through this series. Yeah, yeah. He's really not likable. Like I don't know, <laughs> George Hurst, not yeah. likable. No, not not, like- he's not. <laughs> not likable, and I don't know like how people even elected him. They didn't. Any kind of. Now the senators in those days were appointed. Oh. Yeah, that was a change to our Constitution, that uh, originally the House was elected, but the Senators were appointed. Hmm. So, we're, we're going to talk about the real George Hearst a little bit later, because the real Hearst and the fictional Deadwood TV Hearst, different people. Totally different people. For sure. Uh, but... The real George Hurst, in 1882, he ran for governor of California. He lost to General Stoneman. In 1886, Stoneman appointed Hurst to the position of senator following the death of another senator. In 1887, he was elected by the state legislator to a full term in the U.S. Senate. So it was the state legislature that... Yeah. Okay. First first appointed by the governor to fill a spot, and then elected by the state legislature. Yeah, I knew that they weren't... For another term. I knew they weren't elected by the uh i think every state had the option to do it differently but uh not sure but they weren't elected by the public it was it was different than we're used to Uh, also in the background of this scene we don't want to forget because it's very important that uh general samuel fields is fishing in the creek yes he is and now it's night, and Jane enters the number 10 saloon. There she is welcomed by Tom Nuttall and the other patrons. She gives a speech in honor of Wild Bill, promises her spirit will stand watch, as in life she was unable. And she wants to be buried under the floor. <laughs> yes, under the floor burns. <laughs> yeah. She's, she's buried in the cemetery, just like in a real place. She is. I feel like this is another callback to the pilot, because in the pilot... She goes into the gem saloon when night falls to talk to them about the road agents. And the men basically laugh at her because she's drunk and she's uh-huh. a woman and the way she's dressed. And then she's like, well, then I, I'm going to go because I don't, I don't want to drink any way here. Where I'm the only one with balls. And they all laugh. And uh, what a joke she is. But here she's welcomed as an old friend. Yeah, yeah. there's some playful back and forth. But 
they love her. You know, yeah. she's yeah. welcomed here. I'm laughing at her, but but it was it was like laughing with her. It was it was it was that familiarity sort of a laugh where it's like, um, oh, it's Jane, you know, as opposed to, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Jane Artis Cannery, artist of Latin origin, meaning ardent or industrious. Oh, very fitting. Cannery meaning place where they make cans. <laughs> yep. We also see that Deadwood has electricity now, because now we're seeing lights on. Oh, by the way, I I went to the, I think I probably mentioned it back when, but I went to, when I went to Deadwood, I did go into the number 10 saloon and, and they've got a thing of where Bill was shot and all. It looks very, very different. It looks like a, a you know, regular place, not a shack. Mm. So, um, yeah. This place looks exactly like it did on the show proper. Uh-huh. Like it, it didn't look changed. I think it would have burned down. <laughs> right. You can see through the walls and everything else, but, um, you know, I mean, the one now looks like a proper saloon with, you know, yeah. But it changed in the respect that it has lights now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it has walls. No, I mean it has electricity. Oh, you mean in the show? In the movie? In the movie. In the movie, the the number 10 saloon, like, when when Jane goes in, it's now night. This is the first time we've seen Deadwood in the movie at night, and we can now see that Deadwood has electricity because there's not just candles and torches and lanterns. It's There's actual light bulbs. Wow. Because electricity... Reached Deadwood late December 1883. Wow. The first place in Deadwood to get electricity was the Deadwood Pioneer office. Mm-hmm. The 15 lamps each had 200 candle power. I what? don't know what that means. Is that a lot? Seems like a lot of candles. Yeah. yeah. But is 200? Was someone like, oh man, in uh, Cheyenne, they had 300 candle power lights. I don't know. Was that good? <laughs> I don't know. Better a than demonstrate- What? It's better than what they had before, which was zero. True. Well, no, they had candles. <laughs> they had yeah. single candle powers. <laughs> hey, not zero, one. <laughs> yeah, they had single. They had one candle power in each candle. A demonstration of a 15-lamp electric system astounded the denizens of Deadwood. Following the the show... By, by which I mean the demonstration. The Black Hills Daily Times reported that the machine worked evenly and perfectly, and the light was simply dazzling. Oh, my. And FYI, buildings in town had indoor plumbing by 1892. They were quite the uh, quite the up-and-comers. They, they really were. They got the train very late, but they got electricity, plumbing, and the telephone pretty early. And I've got fun facts about the telephone later. Okay. Wu has brought his grandson to Al's office. Al has a job for little Wu. Delivered a letter to Trixie at the Bullock Star Hotel. The boy inquires as to payment. Payment is upon return and job completion. And Wu has brought some tea for Al for his liver ailments. What a delightful young chap. (laughs) Yeah, it's too bad some of these things. It's like, okay, we're never going to see these people again. Because no more Deadwood. But, you know, Wu looked like an... Little Wu looked like an interesting kid. Would have liked to have seen where he would go in this whole thing, you know? Mm-hmm. I didn't even know Wu had any kids at all. He's got a grandson. He had a son or a daughter. <laughs> Who knew? Don't know anything about Wu, really. Well, hmm. I mean, the thing is that they might have been back in China while Wu is, you know, here making 
making his fortune and stuff. It was it was really common. It was very hard to get uh, for the Chinese to come over because we had all those lovely racist laws. The kids, uh, the kid didn't have uh, any kind of an accent though, so I assumed that he had been there for a while. You might have. Yeah, I assume he, I assumed he grew up in Deadwood. Yeah, well, he sounded very American, very mm-hmm. first generation. Yeah, but he's he also looked like he was less than ten. So it's been ten years. Yep. Actually, it's been thirteen, hasn't it? Twelve. Uh, well, ten years in Showtime, thirteen years in real time. So it's been ten years. The kid looks like he's less than ten. Kiona Young, who plays Wu, has the best voice in real life. I listened to an interview with him, and he's got like this almost southern voice, like like he could voice a cowboy on in Red Dead Redemption or something. Like it, he's it's so silky smooth and and lovely. Nice. It's a real shame that he couldn't use his real voice on this show because oh. yeah. He's great. I, I really enjoyed listening to him. That's cool. Ever seen him on anything else? I, I mean, I probably have, but not, like nothing to my memory. Oh, I should see if he's been in anything where he would get to talk in his real voice versus having to do some accent, you know? Yeah. Because he was in he was in like five episodes of True Blood, mm. but what kind of accent did he put on playing Hiro Takahashi? <laughs> right. Right, so okay. So he was playing Japanese in that one. Yeah, his yeah, but his real American accent is really good. Um, anyway, uh, and I wanted to nominate Wu for best dressed. I just want to say that <laughs> I know we don't do that on this podcast. We don't steal every segment from Calavici Fashion Cast, but if we did a best dressed, uh, I would nominate Wu. And I love how Wu reminds his grandson to tip his hat to Al as a show of respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he likes that the kid asks for money, like the kid's like very enterprising. But before you leave the office, make sure you you be respectful to Al. Tip your hat. Yeah. And then Al bows way too low, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> Isn't it like a sign of respect, though? The lower you bow. Yeah, be bowing that low to a kid. I mean, seems a little seemed a little Don't weird. Get a fat head. I thought that was a nice gesture, though. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, bowing was a nice gesture. I just thought I was like, okay, that's it's a nice I, gesture, but it's like really low. I like Alan Wu's friendship. He's still Yeah. Still around. And he seems to have come over just to give him tea. Yeah. So that's all that ha- that's all that happens. <laughs> yep. Yeah, pretty much. And- oh and um Wu wasn't originally in the first draft of the movie, so the way that um the actor tells it is that he said to David Milch, uh, David, I don't need to be in the movie, but I would really love it if I could just be on set one of the days that you're filming so I can just say hi to everybody. Mm. And David Milch was like, dude, you know I'm in your corner. Like, I just haven't written it yet. Like, I'll, I'll write you in. I'll, fi- I'll, figure, I'll figure it out. Don't worry about it. I, I got your back. <laughs> and, then, and then was able to write him into the movie. Nice. That's nice, yeah. I mean, it establishes Wu being there so that when... The general is kidnapped, you know, the fact that he's, you know, there's a commotion and the Chinese are telling him, oh, you know, over here, over here. I mean, it's something that the show never really did was like really get invested in its Chinese characters or Native American characters. It, nope. There, there were some, there was some plots with the general and Ha Settler and what have you, um, but we could have had 
like a whole arc in Chinatown that probably would have been fascinating. Like I would have rather have had that than say the Earp brothers coming to town or whatever yeah. was happening with the theater troupe. Yeah, I agree. I agree that that would have been much more interesting. But I'm glad that Wu was in it. I, I I'm I'm glad that we have a little um, cultural like something other than just the white, all, people, white people we have. Yeah, it's not all homogenous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> not saying it, not saying it well. Hope you understand what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Downstairs, Johnny has the fantods looking at Carolyn. She reminds him of Jen. I don't see the resemblance. No, <laughs> me neither. No. They're both no, blonde. I all. guess starts and stops with that. And then just going over to talk to her gives him a boner. <laughs> Which They're both pretty. Well, it is her job to notice. What I like is that Jen keeps being brought up, that she is a constant reminder for Trixie and Al and Johnny. Like, they all think about her. It It's not like she was just the plot point at the end of the season. Yeah. Where they killed her off and made it all about Trixie. Like, she is, she's a shadow that hangs over all of them, and that is, that's good. That's that's just, I, I feel. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I don't, I hate that they killed her, but... Mm-hmm. At least there was a significance to that. It's it's had a residual effect. It should be haunting them. <laughs> yeah. They say the gem is haunted. <laughs> she rearranges the bar stool. <laughs> <laughs> they were wrong all along. It wasn't Seth Bullock. It was Jen, the whore. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Why would you want, as a ghost, what's your, sorry, what is your purpose of rearranging the bar stools? Like, I don't understand, like. I don't know. Like, what a lame afterlife you must have if that's like, oh, the barstools aren't right. Or, I think do you something think, happened in 1993. Do you think in the paranormal realm, like, the, the geography is slightly shifted a couple of degrees? So that when it looks like she's rearranging the barstools, like, out of order for her, she's actually putting them in, in, in line? And for her, it's like, God, who keeps moving these barstools? Like, why? Like, I just had them lined up. As a ghost, don't you have anything better to do? <laughs> it's just so lame. The thing, I think, you know, they're supposed to be stuck. Yeah. It's not as lame as Seth using a ghost Indian to tell an Englishman that in 1993, they might raise the gambling stakes from $5 in Deadwood. Like, that's, See? that's the dire <laughs> warning. Like, that's, that's what he's so concerned about. Right? That's lame. Like, moving bar stools. Making weird prediction, non-predictions about 1993. What the fuck? <laughs> anyway. Right? <laughs> anyway. We digress. Don't we all? Charlie hasn't shown up for dinner at the Bullock household. Jane hasn't seen him. Harry Manning has gout. But he goes with Seth into the woods, and it's there that they find Samuel. He's he's hiding. Uh, Charlie Utter's been shot through the head. So sad. So sad. Yeah. It really sucks that he wasn't dead right away, too. Yeah, they just let him suffer. Yeah, that was that was the one awful flashback when they flashed back to them just like making fun of him. Oh, yeah, yeah, awful. Yeah, uh, fuckers, that's our friend. That's right. Damn straight. St- stop playing with his scalp. You stop that right now. <laughs> so Seth takes Charlie's body back into town and fires his gun into the air to get everyone's attention and says, uh, "George Hurst, get your fucking ass out here!" And calls him a murdering cunt. <laughs> I liked it. Mm-hmm. Again, he couldn't do much, but he knows exactly whose fault this is. <laughs> yeah, and he's telling the whole 
the whole town about it. Yeah. And I like how, like, he, you know, because he was powerless, he was like, all right, I'm going to get some power back. And then he torched all his lumber. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, if you can't make him pay one way, you make him pay another. Right. And uh, that probably hurt Hurst more than, you know, anything. Not Not because it was so bad to his his bottom line or anything, just because his pride is like, my money! Right? Mm. Don't you touch my money! Al does something almost unheard of. He kicks all his patrons out and he closes the saloon early. Yeah. Just just so he can have a little conference, a little confab with Seth. And Seth says, he asks something that he never would have asked in season one, what's the move, Al? Mm. Yep, they've been working together for a long time now, probably. Yep. And keep... Keep the uh, the the town in the order. <laughs> well, yeah, like when uh, later when Seth leaves to go check on Samuel, uh, Al is like, "Dan, go with him." Yeah, you know, like it was like mm-hmm. like I thought that was pretty telling right there. Mm-hmm. And then and then Seth tells Dan to watch over Al instead, and you know, it's right. like so they're used to giving, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, obviously Dan is going to be more inclined to watch Al no matter who tells him to. But uh, the fact that he didn't listen to Al and instead stayed like Seth told him to, you know, does say something. Just one of my favorite aspects about Dead with the series in total is the way that these two characters are so at odds with each other at the beginning and then become so dependent on each other at the end. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that they're friends, but they are allies. And they're still so different. Mm -hmm. They, they haven't, they haven't really changed per se. They've just kind of come to an understanding of who each other is and, the fact that they can work with them in certain respects. I'd say Al's changed a lot since the first season. But He's got feelings now. Yeah, yeah he even, even admits it. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. I feel like he's definitely softened. He's he's softened regarding Trixie. I mean, in the very first episode, he yeah. like what he punched her. He, no, he put his he put his he put his uh, foot on her throat. Yeah, he almost yeah. killed yeah. her. He threatened to kill her. Yeah. I wasn't sure that he wasn't going to that first hmm. episode. He was mean. He was abusive. And oh, he yeah. Did he did it, oddly enough, out of love. <laughs> like, I don't did like he? to say it, but... Well, you could tell that he cared for her, even though he abused her, you know? Mm. It's uh, just like he had a point of, I don't know. What? That first episode, I'm not sure that that was all that clear to me, at least. Well, I think you don't... I mean... Sometimes you get angry at the people that you love, and I'm not excusing that behavior at all, I'm not saying that, but sometimes you get really angry at the people you love because of their behavior, and you wouldn't get angry at that for other people because you don't really care what they do, they don't have anything to do with you. Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. I can't remember what she did to deserve a boot on the neck, but... She shot uh, a guy. Yeah, she shot yeah. Right. She shot a guy who'd been abusing her. Right. Yeah. I feel like early Al really did regard women as property, and oh, yeah. now it's more like they are employees. I, when Carolyn Woolgarden, and I sometimes I call her Carolyn Butterworth in my 
Yeah, <laughs> my notes because he says her name is like Butter. So I, for whatever reason, I wrote down Carolyn Butterworth, but I know that's not her name. It's Carolyn Woolgarden. Anyway, <laughs> he the way he kind of um, interact the way he interacts with her. I wouldn't say that he's flirting with her. It's just he's very congenial, and I yeah. don't feel like early Al would be that way. No. No. He's more like a grandpa now. Yeah, he's more like a grandpa. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a lot. yeah, he's well, slowed down. What I'm saying though no. is that he probably was still capable of like love as warped as it was. You know what I mean? But he just didn't want to admit to it, didn't want to like uh, give into it. But now in his like weakened state, he's more like, oh, like you know, yeah, I guess I like you know. <laughs> a lot of guys I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's just like I don't know. A lot of guys do uh, mellow with age like crazy. Yeah. Um, and I mean, when I was saying they didn't change, I wasn't meaning they didn't change, have like an arc. I meant that they didn't, they weren't untrue to who they started out to be. I mean, Al had an arc. He had, he developed. He didn't, you know, just suddenly like, oh, now we're working together. Now we're pals, you know. It was still him. It was just a more uh, enlightened version of him. Mellower version. Yeah. And I think Trixie did a lot to change him, too. Yeah. Upstairs in Al's bedroom, he's speaking his inner thoughts to Caroline. When I'm gone, who will protect her? Can the Jew do what needs to be done? Can Bullock have I feelings for her? And in the past, he would have been doing this uh, line delivery via blowjobalog. Yeah. Yeah. But his age and his illness has made Al reluctant. Uh, w slash R slash T prick sucking. So Carolyn's answer, it makes me want to weep how you remind me of my dad. I know. Uh, <laughs> what? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And Al says, it's a sad night. Something's a fire. Christ, I do have feelings. <laughs> and the little fire wagon rolls by. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, she's like, "Do you want a monologue? Will I suck your prick?" And he's like, "I told you no. Yeah. I just want to cuddle." Yeah, yeah. And, and I, think- I love. No, go ahead. No, no, go on. I love these little quick edits between Trixie and Carolyn. Yeah. Uh, when Trixie in the past sits on on Al's bed, you see Caroline sitting down, and then when Al brings Carolyn closer to his chest, you see this quick edit of him doing the same thing to Trixie all those years ago. Yeah. It's just, it's so subtle, but really, it's, a, it's just really wonderful. It's adorbs. Yeah, I, um, when we were doing the commentary, the question came up of what, what was Caroline's function? And I think once looking at it again, we realized, oh, okay, Caroline's function was to be that person that Al talks to about this stuff. While also being a you know another young pretty face, a new pretty face that you know got to have one of those. Yeah. But that, and then at the end, her um, her walking with Sophia, um, and after Trixie had made her kind of think about whether she really wanted to be a whore. Um, I feel like Carolyn has more function than Sophia does because I don't yeah. know anything about. Sophia as a young adult. Right. I know all about her past, but as right. an adult now, what what is her personality? What are her interests? What are her life goals? I don't know anything about her, and she doesn't have anything to do. Um, she was always kind of a cipher. I mean, she was never, you know, I mean, first it was because she didn't speak any English, and 
and all of that, but she was always kind of not, didn't have a lot to do. I wonder if there are some deleted scenes with her. I I would like, in the version in my head, I see that Sophia met Caroline at the train station and has somehow, like, decided that she's going to not let Caroline become a, a whore. Like, she's like, perhaps her mother taught her, Alma taught her, like, women's lib or something. And she's, like, really going to insert herself. Mm-hmm. And But she doesn't do any of that. They twirl in the snow at the end, but yeah, they mean, don't I, have any other scenes together. It feels like there the, should be a scene there. Just the ones at the train station. Yeah. But it's, but I felt like that was more about Caroline than about Sophia, because I think Sophia was there more to indicate the possibilities in this more modern age for Caroline, um, as things were opening up just a little bit, that uh, between Trixie telling her, you know, pointing out to her that uh, she was made to think of herself that way by the guy who turned her out, and um, her meeting Sophia, and now her apparently befriending Sophia at the end. That Sophia is kind of the the symbol of of respectability and and possibilities for the future. I always enjoyed those interactions between Trixie and Alma when Alma was still on the dope and Trixie was getting Alma clean and yeah. Alma stupidly naively offered to see Trixie settled in New York with Alma's relatives. And Trixie's like, are you fucking, like, uh, nuts? Are you out of your mind? Like, I can't fit into that world. Like, you idiot. Like, (laughs) no, that can't happen. Uh, I was hoping for the, like, the evolution of that, but but have it between the next generation, between Caroline and Sophia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it just, it doesn't happen. I guess there's no time. But anyway. Yeah, I I mean, but it, we saw the beginning of what, what it could happen. Cause, I mean, um, Caroline has got a whole lot more presence, um, like sophistication and such, presents a much better outside view than, than Trixie did. Right. Well, she's yet to be totally damaged. Exactly. She's on the precipice. I went online. I tried to find critics, anyone saying, well, like, what's the point of Caroline? Does anyone have a have an opinion? So I found this from Alan Suppenwall, who wrote a review for Rolling Stone. He says... It's hard to work a new character into a story this brief in the middle of a crowd of old favorites who don't all get much to do themselves, but her presence is less about Caroline herself than about what she represents to others. To Johnny, she's a chance to redeem himself for his failure to protect Jen. To Al, she's a reminder of what he once had with Trixie before his abusive behavior and the fundamental awfulness of being a prostitute in the Old West drove her from the gem forever, and she's a reminder of the path Trixie was able to take herself off of. After Caroline is done holding the baby during the wedding planning, Trixie asks if she believes she was born to be a whore. Caroline sheepishly suggests it's the only thing she's fit for, to which Trixie replies, How hard do you suppose the bastard turned you out had to work to make you think that? It's a bit of wisdom Trixie might have understood during the events of the series, but not something she would ever want 
or be able to articulate to someone else until now. That she does it demonstrates a new level of maturity and kindness that will serve her well in her new role as owner of the gem, even if she opts to make it into a dance hall. So the passing of the torch ultimately isn't from Trixie to Caroline, but from Al to Trixie, who even wears Al's trademark pinstriped coat as she stands in the balcony and looks down the thoroughfare at her husband and child. Hmm. Did not notice that. I didn't, I didn't notice. notice I didn't notice that either. I don't even remember that scene of her standing on the balcony watching. I do not remember that. I must have. I missed that entirely. Yeah, I don't know. I have to go back and look at that. It is day, and the men of the gem are toasting to Charlie Utter. Although Al owes Charlie a send and off, he's clearly too ill to go. So he tells Dan, "You go. A handful of dirt for each of us." Samuel Fields recounts to Seth how he saw Charlie shot through the head, but he cannot identify the man who did it, him being the color that he is. Seth swears he'll die before he lets anyone lynch Samuel, and Samuel says, bless you for saying so, but get me a lawyer. And then we go to the funeral. It's very brief, but we hear Seth recount how Charlie was the first person in the camp to offer his hand in greeting. He also says Charlie was took from them wrong, and Joni states that no man ever stood up for her like Charlie did. Oh, and Con Stapleton's a reverend. <laughs> oh, is that who that was? That's who that was. Any thoughts about the funeral? It's really short. It is. I like seeing Seth get emotional. Gets emotional a couple times in this movie. Yeah, I uh, think they were trying to, you know, bring back our own memories and stuff. And um, I'm glad they did not put a flashback in when, you know, Seth was saying that. Um, because... If you saw the original, then it was like, oh, yeah, I remember that, you know. Um, yeah, I don't really remember who the first person was that, like, welcomed them to camp. I think he came, there was a, an extra- I thought it was the, actually, I thought it was the Reverend, but I I don't, I didn't go back and verify that. That, it felt wrong to, like, fact check Seth. <laughs> like, Seth said a really nice thing. I didn't want to go back and be like, no, 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 actually, it wasn't Charlie. It was somebody else. Well, I, there was a. I think Charlie was the first one that he had a... No, I think it was Charlie, because there was some kind of altercation, and I think Charlie came up to him and uh, asked him about boots or something. I don't remember. You know, little, you know, passing the time kind of discussion, and then having to do with whatever the altercation was, and then something about boots or something like that, or his prices or something. I don't remember exactly. Charlie's murder it was just the thing to get Joni out of bed and sober mm. and decent because Jane's crying and Joni goes up to her and takes her by the hand and leads her to the funeral. She's like, it's time to, it's time to send him off or whatever she says. I don't remember. Yeah. But it's sweet and yeah. they're kind of, they've kind of patched things up. Like, I, I guess it does sometimes take, um, something awful like this to put things in perspective. And it must have put something in perspective for Joni to sort of like, you know what, whatever shit we were going through, it's just not important. Let's, let's just jump to the reconciliation phase of the relationship and I'll take right. you by the hand and let's go say goodbye to our friend. It's very sweet. Yeah. It's very nice. The Irishman and the Swayze go into the Grand Central Hotel. They walk right past poor E.B. This sends him scampering up the stairs into secret passageways <laughs> where from he can spy on his guests. We hear Hearst admit to paying for a professional level of execution. He was also He's also aware of a witness in the custody of the marshal, the dark-complected fellow. If the complication is taken care of, the men will earn... $50 additional. And I said it in the commentary, but I don't like the robe that Hearst is wearing, so I nominated him for worst dressed. <laughs> it, was really, it was really ugly. So ugly. I don't know. It seemed okay. I... So, wait. 
Hearst owns this hotel, right? He, didn't he buy this hotel from E.B. Farnham? Yeah. So one would assume that Hearst knows that, like, paid for its renovations, even though he wasn't there. I'm surprised that, like, the construction people didn't tell Hearst, like, hey, boss, um, this E.B. guy, like, he says he wants secret passageways, like, put into your hotel. Is that cool? <laughs> you know, I, he was in the, the room, he was in the room next to Hearst's room. Oh, it seemed like he was crawling, like... But, yeah, there was definitely... It was between the walls and stuff. Yeah. But, you know, um... <laughs> I, you know, it it could have been... It could have been uh, done for some kind of particular purpose. The electric and the plumbing and all of that stuff. And uh, there were some odd passages and stuff in some of the old buildings. There was some weird stuff that went on, and E.B. could have gotten people to to do it without without letting. I'm sure Hearst really didn't care very much. I was, I was just about to say I'm yeah. going to excuse it away. As Hearst doesn't care, he just assumes E.B.'s listening to all of his conversations. He doesn't care. Well, he probably thinks E.B.'s too weak willed to do anything about it. I think he probably just doesn't care about the hotel. I mean, he he left Deadwood. He owns a hotel. He owns multiple other things. Is the hotel paying its way? It's paying its way fine. Yeah, whatever. I don't know. I mean, he he would let that go, but he doesn't let other things go. I, I, I don't know. Well, if it was brought to his attention, that's one thing. But I'm not sure that he would be like... I'm sure E.B. has the has the line on on all the people who work on the hotel and everything else and, and make sure that everything, you know kickbacks and everything else. Yes, I just don't think Hearst... I think it would be really small potatoes for Hearst to care much as long as the hotel isn't in the red. So Hearst dispatches E.B. to place a telephone call to lead weekly shipments of lumber until further notice. Did he actually be- have to pee? What's that? <laughs> Did he actually have to pee? He didn't go pee that we saw. He was like dancing around. Um. Or he just wanted to leave. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> he probably he probably did have to pee. I'm gonna say he did, and he went and he did. He probably did. He didn't need the scene. We didn't need no, to see him do it. We really didn't. He's he's such a weird guy. He's always been a weird, squirrely little man. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> it was great though. It's great to hear Hearst just prattle on, and suddenly be like, "What are you doing?" Yeah. I'm not gonna say it because it might be my quote. Yeah. President Rutherford B. Hayes' administration installed the first telephone in the White House in 1878, followed by a telephone exchange at New Haven, Connecticut. Western Union opened the first larger city exchange in San Francisco, California, but the first telephone exchange in a territory was activated in Deadwood in March 1878. There you go. The launch of the telephone service did not pass without appropriate fanfare. The Deadwood Pioneer reported that the town celebrated the new technology with a large bonfire, gathering, and a grand ball at the Grand Central Hotel. Telephone calls between Deadwood and Lead, 10 miles apart, cost 50 cents. 25 cents less expensive and a whole lot faster than a stagecoach ride between the two. And it was because of the telephone that the citizens of Deadwood were able to be alerted in time for the approaching flood of 1883, possibly saving lives. Oh, excellent. That's good. I like how E.B. did not want to line up for the telephone with all the riffraff. <laughs> Why is the telephone so popular, I wonder? Who are they all calling? Well, that's always like the old joke, right? When there's like two telephones, like who is there to call? Yeah. Yeah, but they would do things like they would put them 
you know, like in the lobby of a, of a rooming house and then everybody would have to use the same phone. So if, you know, or the, or you'd call the neighbor, you know, down the way and then that neighbor would have to, you know, send somebody to get you. Yeah. Did all kinds of stuff like that back then. It's just new tech and people are all about new tech and they just want to try it out. Like it doesn't matter if you don't have anyone to call, you just want to do it. It's like, you know, when you get a, when you get a VR headset and just cause you buy like every game, (laughs) cause it's like, you want to see what it's like. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. EB, EB didn't want to use a telephone, but once he was using it, he was very amazed. Yeah, but, it was it was cute the way they did that. And he, but then he did have the 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 uh, mental capacity to realize that when he was talking, when he was saying a comment to himself, he should cover up the uh, the little mouthpiece. <laughs> mm-hmm. There is to be an auction for Charlie Utter's land. It's going to be held at the gem. This was a question that we kind of had while watching the the movie, which is how did Hearst know that Charlie didn't bequeath the land to somebody? Like that, it wasn't in a will, or that that where is just because he eliminates Charlie Utter doesn't mean he gets the land. So I guess it's answered in this scene. It's going to go up to for auction. Okay, somehow he knew that. In preparation for the auction, Jules putting out cans of peaches, and Dan scolds her. Peaches are for the meetings with the town elders only. Not not for everyday business. This is an auction. I missed that. Best callback. One thing I did notice was that. When E.B. decided to tell Seth about the um, the assassins and uh, that they were going to go get General, uh, there was this very, you know, when you talk about Shakespearean and stuff, there's very Shakespearean aside when he, as you put it, he put his hand over the thing and said, I must tell, I must tell Bullock this thing. And, uh, you know, and then later on, there was one, too. It was like E.B. got very... Very much the um, theatrical aside. Are you saying that he cupped his hand around Bullock's ear to tell him about the no, assassination, no, no. the way that he interacted with the telephone? First, first, when he was at the telephone, he was talking on the telephone, and then suddenly he says to one side, he says something about, I must tell Bullock about you know this situation right now, or something like that. And then he runs to Bullock, and then there's... When he does tell Bullock, I think there's a there's another line that's similar to that. That's like this is above my mental capacity or something like that. Yeah. Well, he's always talked to himself. Yeah. Right. Right. But it was just it was very it was very much in the every now and then throughout the movie, just like in the in the series, there would be these things that would just hit you as oh, this is very much very theatrical, as in a stage play, very much in a tradition of Shakespeare and such, like the monologue, the soliloquies that, you know, characters have, like Jane had at the beginning. And it really, it really, like, leapt out um, the way E.B., that just that aside about, aha, this is something I need to do. And then he goes and does it, and then there's another one with, with him. He seemed to have that, that character seemed to especially have that, um, thing written into the script. Yeah, he's always been the most theatrical. Yeah, yeah. I'm just wondering with the fact that he whispers about the the assassination attempt to Bullock when he could just... I mean, he, Bullock's just standing in front of Alma. Like, there's no secrets that he needs to keep from her. But the fact that he's whispering to her, like, it kind of calls back to when he's, like, actually on the telephone. That's, and that's his stuff character. he does with his... 
Yeah, he's just, I, he's like one of these people who is like, I don't want to use the telephone. Technology? I have no interest in technology. Uses it one time, loves it, now he's all about it. Yeah. <laughs> and if you call but, him on it, he's always been, he's, no, he was never against it. You're remembering it wrong. He was always in favor of it. Yeah. But he's the type of character who is always, you know, scurrying behind walls and whispering. So. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Really. Yes. Yeah. He's a rat boy. <laughs> um, I want to say something about Jerry Jewell. She said that she almost didn't do this movie because of a recent back surgery, and she was telling her doctor, hey, I, I can't be wearing this back brace you made for me because i, I got to shoot this movie. And he's like, you cannot take the back brace off. If you take the back brace off, I won't be able to do the surgery that you need. So the prop department, or whoever, constructed a 19th century brace to cover her modern brace cool. so that she was able to do the movie. I- I did notice the brace, but yeah, that's cool. Oh, yeah. Definitely noticed the brace. Yeah. I, 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 but, I was wondering if she used to wear that. I couldn't remember if she always had a brace, but I guess not. Well, the doctor had given her... There was a, a leg brace, right? Right, right. Exactly. So one would think that, you know, the it would continue... You know, the doctor would continue supplying her with new and different kinds of helpful things for her for her condition as as they as he figured them out or heard about them or something and we were talking about some of the characters that weren't in the movie like are there any major characters that weren't in the movie titus welliver who played silas adams wasn't able to be in the movie because amazon wouldn't release him he's currently shooting bosch and they wouldn't let him be in the movie. oh right right yeah he i mean he didn't need to be (laughs) like no he didn't He's, he was just another of uh, Al's guys. Right. I mean, I liked him, but the movie's not not worse off because he, he wasn't in it. But Yeah, anyway. also, he came in fairly late in the in the series, as I, you know, I mean, I don't... Yeah, I think end of season one, but... Really? That early? Yeah, yeah. I guess he was in and out and in and out. Yeah, he was one of those in and out characters. I'm just, you just said that. I'm just repeating exactly what you said. <laughs> <laughs> That's stupid. Uh, anyway... Back to the auction. Um, oh yeah, peaches are out on the table, on the counter. That's a fun callback. Every Deadwood fan loves to talk about peaches. That's a real fan servicey joke, but I'm totally okay with it. <laughs> A.W. Merrick is leading the auction. It's a bidding war, and it just as it seems like Hearst has pushed the amount as high as everyone else is willing to spend, Alma stuns the crowd with her bid of $7,000. Oh, it's a real fuck you moment. And even though Hearst tries to go higher, Alma is like, look, it ain't gonna happen, you motherfucker. Yeah. And Al drinks to her, uh, you know, he gestures, uh, like, with, with his flask or whatever, like, so on his balcony, and he's like, yeah, Mrs. Ellsworth. Yeah. And Seth tells her, you did Charlie proud. There's a great look on Sophia's face when she's looking up at her mama. She's so, she's beaming. She's so proud of her mom. So Alma <laughs> really comes through with her money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, it didn't cost her anything, but it's nice. And, uh, I like it a lot. Yeah. Well, she did stand up to Hearst, whereas, you know, Hearst was the one that basically, you know, took everything away. Took, yeah, took, took, took her mine away. from her. Yeah, forced her to sell her, her mine in Deadwood. Yeah. Which always stings, like, that moment when Alma signs over the mine to yeah. her, to, to, to Hearst. Like, it, oh, it hurts my heart, because that was the... That was the thing she worked hard for, like that established her and gave her independence, uh-huh. and and she deserved it, and he didn't deserve it. Like he didn't need it; she needed right. 
And right. he took it from her. Like he, she had no, she had no choice but to sell it to him. So it is kind of nice that in the movie, she can take from him something that he wants. Yeah. Yeah. It is a victory moment. Definitely. I love Alma. You guys, <laughs> you guys know that. Yes, we do. Yes, you do. <laughs> Who are all the different people that bid on this? There was like at least three or four, I think. Probably, I know Seth's in there. I don't know. Did Tom Nuttall put in a bid? Was he there? Yeah, yeah I'm pretty sure. Anyways. Anyways. Is Mel Melanie still with us? She got a phone call. Okay. While all of this business with the auction is happening, her goons have arrived to collect Samuel Fields from the jail, and it is revealed that Harry Manning is the turncoat. E.B. finds Seth, tells him what he overheard in the hotel, so Seth runs outside to prevent the goons from lynching Samuel. The Swayze has little woo by the neck, but Seth shoots the Swayze dead. Samuel IDs the other guy as Charlie's killer, and we get some satisfying angry Seth. Saul has to step in to prevent Seth from punching the Irishman to death, and uh, Saul gets a little smack in the face for his trouble. Hmm. This is one of my primary complaints with the movie, is that why is Harry Manning on her side? Like, it's never explained. Money. Is it just money? It's never explained. It would be money, yeah. What other reason would there be? Well, I know in the season three finale, or maybe it was the penultimate episode, we find out that Seth and Harry, they're up for election. They're both on the ballot to be sheriff. And Hearst has brought in all these guys to vote for Harry. Mm-hmm. So I guess Harry Manning owes his position to Hearst. Yeah, I guess. But Harry never wanted to be in law enforcement. He was all about the fire department. Right. So I don't get what he owes Hearst. I don't get why he would be willing to kill Seth Bullock for George Hearst. Like, something happened in, te- in the last 10 years. It's never explained. Like, I, unless I missed it. I don't think I did, but. <laughs> I just assumed it was money. I guess, but it never, he never seemed like a character that would sell out his friends for. For money. He wasn't really a defined character anyway. Like, I... Maybe, but... Yeah. It seemed a little convenient. Yeah. All we needed was a line of dialogue. Yeah, that's true. To say something like, um... You you know, your gambling debts or something. Like, you know... Right. Like, if if not for you... Like, I know this... Whatever, I don't want to write the scene, but... (laughs) It would have been something like that. Like, an excuse. A reason. Is Carol still here? I don't know. I had to step away because my grandmother called, and she's probably going to call back. You told her you're doing a Deadwood podcast, right? (laughs) Well. Grandma, come on. She can barely hear as it is. I'm not going to start explaining podcasts to her. (laughs) (laughs) Carol? Carol, can you hear me? I'm sure she'll come back. (laughs) Let's move on. Seth brings the Irishman outside the Grand Central Hotel, and he demands that the Irishman identify the man who ordered Charlie Utter's murder. And there's lots of men outside with guns drawn. Hearst goon on the balcony shoots the Irishman dead. Seth shoots the balcony goon. One of the goons on the ground shoots Johnny in the shoulder. Dan shoots that goon. Hearst says congratulations on the rising body count. <laughs> uh, it's a western. Some Somebody's got to get shot. Why did they shoot Johnny? Just because he like re-aimed his gun? I, it seemed like he was just a little trigger happy. Yeah. Mm. Tensions. Can you, hear, can you hear me now? Yes. Oh, good. I could hear you guys all the way through that. So, all right. Who's trigger happy? The guy that shot Johnny. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he Has Johnny been him? shot before? I can't remember. Yeah. Uh, wasn't he uh, I don't think so. Seems like a familiar I, theme. This whole, I, like... Yeah, I thought he was. I thought he was. I don't remember the exact, but it seems like he was. Hmm. 
I can't remember when that would have been, though. Yeah, There's not a lot of gunfights. Like, we started this, this podcast every week predicting the body count, and it turned out to be really low. Yeah. <laughs> like, every week it was, like, one person or zero people. It was never, like, more than two or three. Like, well, that I, was, like, the ceiling. Right at the beginning, there were a lot, and then it just dropped. Yeah. You know? It just like, wasn't that kind of show. Like, it always... The, the violence always... Uh, was an implied, like, a threat, like, percolated. I, I, but there were a couple times when you had, like, big violent scenes, like when um, um, when Dan fought, you know, when there was the big Hearst yeah. fight, you know, and Dan was fighting the other guy and all of that. And I think during one of those kind of violent things, I think Johnny got shot or something. And I, I don't know, I might be totally wrong. Well... It's just like a vague thing. Yeah. I can't remember. Honestly, I can't remember. That's shocking. Oh. Shame on you. <laughs> Shame Harry. on me. Did you have anything to Shame. say about um, Harry Manning becoming like a shocking turncoat? Uh, just that he was always kind of a wishy-washy kind of guy that seemed like he would go, other than his love of fire trucks and stuff, he seemed like he would kind of be pushed in whatever direction. You know, it's like, why was... Why was he even running for sheriff back when? Um, oh, yeah. Obviously, he was told to by Hearst or something. And, you know, I, you know, he. I think he was just somebody that was easily taken advantage of. Got it. That makes as much sense as anything. Yeah. Okay. Trixie hands her son to Saul so that she could sneak into the gem mouse-like to consult with Al. And on the way out, she calls Saul a, a Jew bastard, but she kisses him because she loves him. <laughs> You're my Jew bastard. I could call you a Jew bastard. Nobody else can call you a Jew bastard. <laughs> they're so cute. I mean, their their relationship has not changed in ten years. This is true. What I write in my notes as a fuck you, love you relationship. Mm-hmm. So Trixie finds Al in bed reading. They both have guilt over what happened to Jen, but especially Trixie, who says it ought to have been me in that coffin, and she apologizes to Al for everything. When she returns to Saul and the baby, Seth is there. He asks, can you not manage yourself to stay out of trouble? And she's like, feeling pretty low and pretty sad and hangs her head. And she's like, yeah, I promise. I'm, I'm sorry. But I'll like, be good. She's, she and Seth have never been very close. She's always combative with him. But in this moment, she's like very deferential. She's like, yes, sir. I, I will stay out of trouble. Maybe yeah. it's because she has a kid now. And it's like, it's, now it's too real. And she's been reminded of what getting into trouble can cost people. <laughs> right. Also, I mean, they've known each other for another 10 years and Alma has not been, you know, part of, I mean, part of what she disliked about Seth was the whole thing with Alma. She felt like he treated her badly. You know? mm. So they've had some time to, to get to know each other and mellow out a bit. Yeah. She's definitely mellow. I think she's also just tired and um, very sad because Al is very weak and Trixie just doesn't think he has long to live. And she's right. And she's right. So they're they're all going to go seek shelter at the Bullock House. And Trixie's like, we're going to get married tomorrow. This is when I write down, the ceiling at the hotel seems awfully low. Or maybe it's the camera angle. <laughs> Doc's cabin is guarded by armed men. Samuel has a ruptured spleen and blood in his belly and the Doc can't save. We never find out if he is for sure going to live or die, do we? No. But he comes to, which they weren't sure he would come to. So I took that as kind of a signal that he was probably going to live. 
if he didn't die right uh, there on screen and that's in that because there each time i watched it, i was like uh is he gonna die now but well if he, if he doesn't die then they have their witness and they can put hearst away but, but obviously they don't they hearst isn't going to stay in jail no matter what they yeah. they are not going to take uh african-american guy's word over hearst so, yeah I mean, the most you could hope for is that everyone in town testifies that they saw that Irish guy point to Hearst on the balcony as the guy who ordered the killing, but more he- so than taking Samuel Fields' word for it. It's, but it doesn't matter, because it's obviously, Carol, you're right, they're not going to put a senator in jail for yeah, they're- uh, a hiring murderers for some guy, like a hit job, a U.S. senator hit job. It doesn't make any sense. No, it's not going to happen. And uh, and Hearst knows it, and everybody else knows it. That's one reason Bullock lets them beat on him before he, he stops it. Because that's the most they're going to get. It must and, have felt so great to let that happen. And maybe the picture in the paper, embarrassing him. Right. Yeah. But that's, you know, I don't know if you remember in the, the sting, there's a, when they talk about doing the sting on the guy for, for killing their friend, and he says, you know, it's not going to be enough. And, uh... And it's like, yeah, whatever they do, it's not going to be enough because they're not going to really get him anyway. But so they take what they can get. So it's morning and Al has pissed himself. <laughs> Downstairs in the gem, Trixie's line up the horrors. There is to be no fornicating on the premises. She hands a little Joshua off to Carolyn Woolgarden, whom Johnny's still enamored with. Carolyn has sewed up Johnny's gunshot. Lifted your wallet while she's doing it, Dan teases. <laughs> Dan doesn't get much to do in the movie, which I think is awful because... Partially because I love W. Earl Brown. He's such a cool guy on Twitter. (laughs) But it just sucks that, like, Dan's function is just to kind of, like, tease Johnny and Jewel and not really... He doesn't really do anything. But anyway, Trixie makes Carolyn question whether she deserves to be a horse, speculating that it was some man who ground down her self-esteem to make her think that was her only worthwhile function. Probably right. And this reminds me of when, right before William's funeral... Trixie had lined up all the horrors and told Jen that Jen had seven kinds of cock breath. <laughs> so I feel like this is the lining of the horrors is a callback to that scene. Yeah. I've forgotten about that. Yeah. In I like yeah. In fact, Caroline was the last whore in the in the line, just like I think Jen was. I think I think Trixie went down the line and said to Jen, Jen, you got seven kinds of cock breath. And I feel like they were probably arranged in the same order, like the same, like she ended on Caroline, just like she ended on Jen. And yeah. since there's all this comparison between the two of them, at least on Johnny's behalf, I th- I'm thinking it's that this is an intentional callback and not just my imagination. No, I'm, yeah, it probably is. I didn't remember it myself, but that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> I mean, now that you mention it, I remember it. I really liked that scene. I, I just thought it was so fun with her you know it's like general trixie getting her wedding plan together how tall are you woman uh five foot seven five foot seven i didn't know they stack shit that high (laughs) jesus (laughs) i want i want to see drill sergeant trixie now i like the one horse saying well how how come she gets to hold the baby and trixie's (laughs) like because i'm the bride and it's my special fucking day (laughs) (laughs) nice it's Al's resolve to attend the wedding, so Doc gives him some medicine to swallow. In his office, Al takes a meeting with the Star family, and little Joshua sneezes in Al's face. It's so cute. <laughs> Al offers the gem to Trixie, 
And if she doesn't want to run women, then Trixie can make it a dance hall. Al's wedding gift to Sal is some advice. Consider running for office. And the men shake hands. And this is anachronistic advice because 1889 in the movie and Saul would already be mayor. Oh. <laughs> well, whatever. <laughs> he was elected in 1884. And he held the position for 14 years. Hmm. And then after South Dakota achieved statehood, he served as state senator. All right. History facts. <laughs> At the livery where Joni is cleaning Charlie's horse, Jane angrily, lovingly tells Joni to never fold, no matter how sad she gets. And they kiss. Yeah, because Joni makes a comment about suicide. Yeah. So what? what's so bad in Joni's life, I wonder? I think she's lonesome. Yeah. And she's got a lot of baggage from Cy. Yeah. And, and her her childhood and stuff. Yeah, I think that's all baggage. Uh-huh. It's, there's certainly there's just really no reason for her to to not have a wider circle of friends. She's been in that town 10 plus years. She's owned a, you know, she had that one brothel. They turned that into a schoolhouse. Why isn't she better friends with, I don't know, Martha Bullock or what happened to Mose? Well, she knew people. She knew people, but I mean, she is in a in a kind of weird position. I mean, she's you know, she's still a uh, a madam, basically. And so, depending on who her friends are. I would have liked to have known what happened to Cy. Like, at what point did he exit the picture and turn over the Bella Union to her? Well, he was... I don't know. What was his health condition the last time we saw him? Because there for a while, he was not doing well. I think he was fine. Had he gotten over everything? I can't recall. I can't either. He was never, like, my favorite character. Hmm, no. Al has $14,000 in the mattress for Al and Johnny to divide equally, which is nearly 400000 in today's money. And I'm not sure if uh, Doc is part of the arrangement, because even though he's present, the way he talks about, you know, splitting the money equally makes me think that it's just for Dan and Johnny. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I thought it was Dan. I mean, I know Doc's always around, but... And it's kind of rude to talk about something like that in front of Doc, but... It just doesn't seem like Doc is quite close enough that Al would be like, all right, split it three ways with the Doc. Like, what? No, no probably I, not. I could almost see him doing it on purpose in front of Doc so that if they do start fighting about it, Doc would be the one to come in and say, what the hell are you doing? You heard Al. I heard Al. You know. Well, Al said, I will haunt you. Like, right. Didn't he? So it's yeah, like, he said, anyway. I will haunt you. But I mean, the fact that he's, I could see him. Knowing good and well that, you know, the doc would be one person in the town who, number one, is not going to come in and steal the money just because, you know, he heard where it was and who would try and keep the guys honest. Yeah. I'm still bitter 20 plus years later when this woman that was a friend of my parents' friends gave money to my friend right in front of me. Like they knew each other from church, I guess. They were, they're all Lutherans. (laughs) And anyway. This older woman is like, here, Brian, here's some, here's five dollars to spend uh, on candy or whatever, like right in front of me. Like, no, do that in pri- I don't expect some woman like I barely know to give me money, but do it in private. Like, give give money to the kid you know in private, not in front of that other, not in front of me. Like, I'm still bitter about it. I'm like, that was a shitty thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I agree with you that that's not the way. You know, usually, even if you don't know. Somebody, you if you're giving something to one kid, give something to another kid too. 
maybe not the same thing, but give it to somebody. You know, it's just not right. On the other hand, Doc is not a kid, and they know each other pretty well. And I don't think Doc would be expecting $14,000 to be split with him or anything. Yeah. No, I don't either. It just, this reminded me of when that woman did that. I can't even remember her name. Yeah, those things stick with you. Yeah. That was definitely not. Was Jewel given any money? We don't know. I mean, technically, he could have already handed out, you know, I mean, he could have been supporting Doc's medical practice for a while. You know what I mean? He could have been a benefactor to to Doc's medical practice. He could have already taken care of Jewel. You know, you don't know. I can't imagine that he would leave Jewel high and dry. No. He knows they'll take care of her. Alice escorts Trixie down the steps as the piano plays, and Reverend Con Stapleton promises the wedding will be respectful to Jewishness. Con gets heckled by a drunk who says, A for effort, Reverend, and the drunk gets the boot. <laughs> Sophia brings the nuptial rings, and Con pronounces them man and wife. Hooray. I, I love the drunk. Not as key a character as the titty licker or the pussy sniffer, but I do love whenever these respectable people in town have a function, and some asshole is just there because that's the town. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You just can't get, get, get rid of them. Never got to see Soapy again. Oh, Soap. <laughs> oh, that's right. I forgot about Soapy. Well, I mean, he got thrown out of town so many times. And we cut tonight, and everyone's dancing. Even Seth and Alma end up as dance partners, and there's a little spark there, a little sexual tension. But it's interrupted by one of Seth's awful children. <laughs> And as Seth twirls with his twerp out of Alma's life, she's left alone with Sophia and a plot of land that she has to now decide what to do with. Yeah. I thought that was really um, nice photography of him with the daughter, and it just he just recedes right out of her life. Yeah. You know, and it kind of went a little blurry and everything. You know, they put a little filter over it or something. Yep. And in a swirl of confusion, he's gone. He's gone. The love of her life is gone. And the fact that it was his daughter, you know, in his arms and stuff as he Ugh. twirls off. <laughs> oh, little little Shirley Temple. Get the <laughs> fuck out of here. Yeah. What do you uh, What do you want to see Elma do with Charlie's land? Build a temple to Charlie. Mm. Just let's keep a fish in that stream. She can make a little... Hey, my first thought is just, you know, a, a nice little summer home for herself, but... Uh, I'm sure she'll do something with a a business sort of thing to it. Mm. Halfway house for abused women? Mm. Probably not. A library? Another bank there? It's way out of town for, for yeah. a library, I think. More like a, well... Bird sanctuary? I don't know. I, w- I wish I knew what Sophia was interested in. Maybe if there had been a little line of dialogue earlier where, Oh, Sophia, with your always painting those pictures and then later Alma had been like we will build that art studio you want I don't know something <laughs> something to something to give me an idea of what Sophia likes and yeah. is interested in and maybe the she land likes, could go toward that she likes being almost shadow yeah Sophia is pretty much a cipher she's she's just there's they really did not give her much personality she didn't have a whole lot of personality in the series you know yeah Hearst crashes the wedding, 
Trixie makes an effort to keeping the peace, but Hurst has brought with him Sheriff Larrabee of Lead and his deputy to arrest Trixie on attempted murder charges. Dude, let it go. It's been ten years. How dare he? And you're fine, aren't you? You're fine. <laughs> what are you <laughs> complaining about? Yeah. She shot you ten years ago, and you're fine. What's the big deal? <laughs> I do like Anyway. Saul, I do like how Saul stepped up, and they were, like, gonna arrest her, and he's like, you get the hell out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Seth uh, says that those men have no jurisdiction in Deadwood and also really impolite not to come with me with, to this first <laughs> like when you come into my town like yeah. you, you go find the, find the guy who's in charge of law enforcement in the town and talk to him to not do it is just really rude and interrupting weddings is rude This is all, you're all very impolite and then he arrests Hearst for the murder of Charlie Utter and uh, Merrick takes Hearst's photo on the way out the door which is funny yeah <laughs> And in the thoroughfare, Hearst gets set upon by the mob, partially thanks to Jane, who very loudly declares, Hey, this United States Senator had Charlie Uttered murdered! And they all, um, attack him. And Seth just sort of stands back, and he lets it happen for a time. Uh, then he finally fires his gun in the air. It takes Hearst by the ear, which is another callback. Yeah. It's great. He throws him in the cell. And Jane's ordered to go fetch the doc, but sensing something is wrong, as Harry Manning walks past her, she draws her gun, and before Harry can kill Seth, Jane shoots Harry in the back. The bullet appears to go straight through the heart. So I thought it was interesting that they specifically showed Seth's family. Um, his wife sees what's going on and sees what, what Seth is doing, and she shoes, shoes the kids away. Yeah, yeah or not doing your father. He's being bad right now. Yeah, let's not see this part of your dad. Yeah. He's letting somebody get perhaps beaten to death on the street. Yeah. Yeah. Martha's another character that doesn't have anything to do in this movie. Yeah. She never did. Except she, yeah, she really didn't. Somehow is even less. She's there to look concerned. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to try and include all the characters that were on a television series in one movie... Some of them are going to get short shrift. There's no two ways about it. Just yeah. one scene with Martha and somebody else. Maybe Martha and Alma or Martha with Sophia. Like, Sophia thanked Martha for teaching her to read or saying, like, how I always valued your your lessons. Right. But a little bit more of that, like a little bit more development with Martha and Sophia. I felt like there, I felt like there was space in the movie to have, like, five more minutes between some of these characters. Like, just a yeah. Little bit. yeah. I agree with you. I agree with you. There are a few people that could have had just a moment. They could have had some, you know, just one of those character-defining moments like some of the others had. And Garrett Dillahunt gets his cameo. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Love it. Wearing a terrible fake beard, he shouts, Hope you die in the street like my dad did! <laughs> and I, I, I don't know, is his dad supposed to be somebody? Is that a reference to something? That I don't know. <laughs> Didn't he claim that Bill had shot his dad? What? Um, I don't know. I don't remember. No, I mean, maybe Jack McCall did. Well, that's who I meant. Yeah, but this wasn't Jack McCall, so who oh. is this? Oh, because he had a he had a uh, short cameo as Jack McCall, too. Well, he had not more than a cameo. He had several episodes, five episodes. No, I mean in the movie. In a flashback. No, oh. oh, in, in the in flashback. In the there was a flash of him shooting yeah. Bill. It was really quick. Oh. What is, so is this supposed to be Jack McCall's brother? Like I don't know. I don't know who the reference of of the dad is. It, I don't know. It's a weird oh, okay. line. Okay, never mind. Because I yeah. I've misunderstood you. You were talking about that line when he was in the uh, crowd as a 
as an yeah. extra or one. Yes. Yeah. Which I had not heard that and I forgot about it. So I didn't listen. I didn't listen for it this time. I hadn't noticed the first time through and now I've forgotten. So I'll have to check it next time I, I go through. It was nice to see uh, Jane uh, save somebody's life. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that makes her feel better. <laughs> About hmm. a little bit better. <laughs> I mean, thank God she was sober enough to do it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. And I know, Carol, that you said that uh, Harry's the kind of guy who seems just very easily uh, manipulated. Yeah. But uh, it's quite a leap to murder. To, oh, yeah. To murder your fellow law enforcement officer? Yeah. A guy you've known pretty... Yep. Pretty, you know, not, I would say intimate in a sexual way, but intimately for yeah. 10 years, 10 plus years, and, and you're going to shoot him in the back for George Hurst? Why, like, I don't get it. Like, it still, don't, it still doesn't make any to. sense. Yeah. George Hurst didn't even ask him to? Um, well, you don't know. Yeah, I mean, it isn't explained. Um, I guess it's one of those things that, you know, these things that very often aren't explained, so hmm. they just, you know, kind of went with it. And Hurst looks so small when he's in his cell. Like, he's he's been beaten, humiliated. We know that he's going to walk a free man, but in this moment, he he's such a sad, pathetic creature. He's lost. But not in real life. Hey, I've got some nice things to say about the real George Hurst. I thought I would read them now. All right. When TV Hurst is at his lowest... I will I'll read some uh, some true history facts. The historic Hearst was universally known for his altruism and strength of character. As a member of the California legislature, and later an elected senator, an office he held with distinction until his death from cancer in 1891, Hearst was respected by Democrats and Republicans alike. As fellow Senator Daniel Voorhees of Indiana recalled, he had a high manliness of bearing, a gentle kindliness of manner, a winning courtesy, and a native gracious dignity which were magnetic. Senator and Brigadier General Thomas J. Clooney said, No man ever accused him of one dishonest act. I have walked by his side on many occasions. I have seen him approached by broken-down old miners, and with tears in his eyes, he would put a hand in his pocket and furnish them relief. Hmm. Wonder why they chose to make him a horrible villain. <laughs> I don't know. Um, Maybe it had to do with the, the reputation of his family in general. I, I mean, yeah. Of of course, but it's you know once you have a little bit of money, it just seems like rich people find ways to get richer, and then they do look at people who aren't rich and go, "Well, I was able to get myself out of poverty. Why weren't you?" Yeah, and also, I mean, all of those accolades, I, I'm sure they probably are true, but they're also from people who were on peers. his on his peers. Yeah, his peers. Right. And and that's not necessarily who he would show his bad side to. And that's that's absolutely true. So, like, yes, he reaches into his pocket and and gives out a coin to a miner who's like with tears in his eyes, you know, thank you, thank you, and you don't see the hundred times when he turned that person away or whatever legislation he passed or was backing that had some awful consequence. Although, according to Wikipedia, he was signing some sort of anti-monopoly legislation, but I. When I tried to find details about that, I couldn't, so... I mean, he might have been great. You know, there's no... I don't know. He might have been fantastic, wonderful, all that. And then again, you know, there might have been another side to the whole thing. You know, the miner might have needed that coin because, you know, he had no job because of the policies that, you know... 
rich people of that time were not particularly wonderful most of the time to their employees. There are a few that are well known for like, um, like for instance, Hershey Park. Have you ever heard of that in Pennsylvania? It's a Hershey Park. It's like a, uh, a, what do you call it? Um, It's an amusement park now. And uh, like Six Flags or something like that. But um, it's connected to the, the Hershey Chocolate Company. And Mr. Hershey, who first started the chocolate company, started this park. It was for the employees. And he was known as this really amazing employer. He had this park for them that he started so that they would have a place to go and, and, uh, and relax and, you know, so forth and so on. And then, you know, later on in, you know, like 40, 50 years ago, it started all the parks started and, and it became a commercial concern. And now, you know, you pay a large amount of money to go in and ride rides. But, you know, there were those employers, but they were really few and far between. Mostly employees were treated like garbage. Yeah. Hence unions. Hence unions. <laughs> we do have a brief scene to let us know that Samuel Fields will live. He says of Charlie that he seemed a different man before he was shot, like a weight had come off his shoulders. He was singing at the end, and to quote Samuel, joyful to hear and behold. I love that. Yeah. It means that even though Charlie was taken from us wrong, that in those final moments, he was totally at peace. Like he, it's this, this, everyone who has survived him has to live with all this awfulness. And for Charlie, it's just, he'll, you know, he exited the world with, in a very calm, serene manner, which is, it's nice to note that. Well, except for those few months, moments where they were kicking at his head flap. Well, he probably didn't have any sense of consciousness at that point to understand oh, that oh, oh. people were picking at his scalp. I mean, he was, he was looking right at them. Um, so. I, but how much, how, okay, you just shat all over some all nice <laughs> feelings I had. Like, I was trying to uh, compartmentalize and feel okay with him being gone. And and the two of you were just like, no, he was probably in a lot of pain well, and really angry. They, they chose to share I was, that way. I was imagining him singing with birds twittering well, in the yeah. background, the babbling brook. And you're like, oh, yeah, but then he was just fucking obliterated. And they made fun of him to his face while he sat there on the ground with his scalp open and his brains gushing out. Okay, thanks. Thanks for that. All right, moving on. Um, during the wedding celebration, like Al has retired to his bedroom. What? I said, what? I'm calling it like I see it. <laughs> you fucking asshole. <laughs> um, yeah, Al has retired to his bedroom. Jewel volunteers to massage his feet, and as she does, they sing Waltzing Matilda. Trixie steps outside onto the farting patio. It started to snow. Jane and Joni walk arm in arm. Sophia and Caroline Woolgarden, I keep wanting to call her Caroline Butterworth, they giggle and twirl. Alma watches out her window, which might be a season one callback, because we know how she loves looking out hotel windows. Yep. Yep. Trixie smiles as she spots Saul holding their baby. Martha is relieved that Seth is home. He says, I'm home. They kiss. Trixie takes Al by the hand. She begins to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven. But Al interrupts, Let him fucking stay there. And he dies. The end. The end. Cool. Oh. It, really, I, really speeds toward the end. Right at the end. <laughs> it does. Uh, a lot happens real quick. Yep. But overall, it was very good. Melanie, any Melanie. thoughts? Are you back? 
No, she's not back. Okay. She probably won't be back, <laughs> unfortunately. Well, we'll hear from her when we do part two of this recording. Okay. Before we go, I've got a couple other behind-the-scenes quotes here from this uh, Rolling Stone article. As always, I, I credit all my sources. Uh, I said this before at the top of the recording, but if you go to hoopocast.com and you find the episode that you're listening to, you click on resources, it takes you to a Google Doc where I have all the links to everything I use to put together the podcast. When Carolyn Strauss and head of HBO programming Casey Bloyles finally started discussing this movie in the spring of 2016, Bloyles had only one major condition, where Milch largely got to make things up in the moment while producing the series' three 12-episode seasons, the movie would need a completed script, with only minimal changes allowed after production began. The cast had all moved on to other projects and series, so they have a limited window with all the actors. We could not take a chance on the revisions that would affect the schedule. Yep. So that was like, he put his foot down. But, you know, David Milch had uh, a long time to, like, think about it ahead of filming and write the script and retool the script before they started filming. It wasn't like a TV show where you write, like, the first four or five episodes of the season, you got them all baked, and then you're, like, scrambling at the end of production to, like, catch up. <laughs> yeah. It was yeah, kind of... So, how long did it take to film this? I guess a couple months. It's miraculous that all the actors were free for a couple months, or however long they needed to be free, I guess. They probably didn't all need to be free at the same time, yeah. in a lot of cases. Yeah. Right. But there were some big like crowd scenes, like the um, yeah. the wedding, of course, and her speech at the beginning. Right, I yeah. mean, they didn't need to be free for the entire time, all at the same time. They would need everybody there at certain times. Yeah. And one thing I watched... They said that Molly Parker was taking a plane back and forth between Los Angeles and Vancouver, where she's filming Lost in Space, and that she was so tired that she would just fall asleep in her costumes. <laughs> that makes sense. And one other thing from the Rolling Stone article. Each of Milch's characters carries around a piece of him, but Swearingen, consumed by demons, yet capable of unfathomable generosity, vulgar and erudite within two breaths of one another comes closest to bearing the totality of the man. I kiss David Milch in the morning, I kiss him when he leaves, says McShane, because after all, I'm really playing David. <laughs> Mel's back, by the way. Yeah, sorry I left for so long. Well, we finished the movie, we finished talking about it. All right. We are going to have a wrap-up episode in two weeks, so if anyone is listening to this at the end of June or the start of July 2019 and wants to get in touch with us, they can send us feedback, hooplecast at gmail.com, and we will read your feedback or play your feedback, if it's audio, on the next recording. That's when we'll do our character of the episode, our favorite quotes, our ratings, and any other kind of final thoughts now that we've totally broken down the plot. Yeah. And as always, go to Facebook, search for Hooplecast, and join the discussion group, because that's where we talk about Deadwood stuff and post-Deadwood stuff, and also talk about other HBO programs. See the Unsolved Mysteries thing that you posted? Yeah. I mean, I just got that from YouTube, so any person who knows what YouTube is could find it, but I've got a link to it right on the Facebook group. Makes it easier. Go see Ghost, Ghost Seth. Yeah. I have a friend. I saw that Whispering sweet nothings into a Native American's ear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Carol. What were you saying? No, I was. Just, I I saw that that was up there. I haven't had a chance to see it yet. It looked really interesting. Watch it's it. not. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. And I've already recapped the best part. Wait, no, it's not. 
been watching. What are you talking about? Of course it's great. <laughs> <laughs> of course it is. Unsolved ah. Mysteries, always great. Yes. It's always good for a laugh. Yes. That's it. All right. That's end of part one. All right. Okay. We'll see everyone next time. And fuck you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Is that how I do it? you and... Well, you usually there's more... There's a little more wind-up. Okay. That's true. There is. Fuck you! TV. He got up and came over to sit closer to me. He said, You look familiar to someone I knew. But when we were your age, we were older than you. Jimmy was 20 and I 17. To us, there
How's the Star Trek porno? Yeah. It's it's awkward, but Well, of course. I mean in a really great way. <laughs> hmm. They they put some effort behind it. They hired uh, a a Jean-Luc Picard lookalike from London, oh. who I'm going to guess is not in any of the sex scenes. <laughs> I mean, will I have to find the actual movie for comparison's sake? I may have to. <laughs> You guess he's not in the sex scenes because he's too too gifted of an actor? It seemed like he would not be, based on, because <laughs> I did look up his Twitter profile, and said how he was a professional Patrick Stewart lookalike. I'm like, well, hmm, maybe he's, maybe he is, maybe he's not. Who knows? I'll have, <laughs> I mean, again, I'll have to track down the uh, full length. L- lookalikes might not be opposed to uh, showing some dick, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it was very funny, though. Yeah. Highly worth the 25 minutes. Oh, it was only 25 minutes. Wow. (laughs) All the the sex was cut out. (laughs) (laughs) Except why did they hire a a Riker with a beard that's like just a goatee and not a full beard? That was was weird. Yeah. Hmm. He was from the Mirror Universe. Did he he like put his leg up on chairs and stuff? It didn't seem like he was emulating that. I'm not watching it then. Everyone get your hard candy out of your wrappers right now. All right. Who started, who did, who started a small fire? <laughs> do you know how far that it's wax paper? Do you know how far that was from my microphone? I was no. curious as to whether you'd hear it or not. It was, it was a good, um, well, let's see, at least more than a foot away. Cool. It sounded like it was right on top of it. And it yeah, was it, it was not just a foot away. Huh? <laughs> sounded closer to the mic than you do. Really, and I'm, well, I'm wearing a headset, and it's right next to it. Um, it was about a foot away, and it was really, really not loud at all. So <laughs> that's interesting. Wow. All right, well, I'm going to put it over here, way far away, and then I'm just going to have it open there. It's a sandwich. It's a sandwich, because oh. I'm hungry. What and I won't, I'll just keep putting it on mute every time I want to take a bite. <laughs> what kind okay. of sandwich? Uh, turkey and Swiss. Yeah, let's dig real deep into this. Uh, tur- anything like on it or? <laughs> what kind well, of bread? I usually like uh, 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 swirl rye, which means rye and pumpernickel swirled together. Ooh, yum yum! That's a good combo. And there's pepper on it, but I did not put mayonnaise, even though I love mayonnaise with turkey. Oh, I can't stand mayonnaise. To hell with you and your mayonnaise. It's oh, not, I love it's good. There's no mayonnaise on this this one i left it off but 
Mayonnaise is so good to dip fries in. Ugh. When I think about mayonnaise, I want to vomit. <laughs> yeah. Well, when I think about you, I want to vomit. <laughs> <laughs> She's standing up for mayonnaise. <laughs> <laughs> so, Carol, you watched some of that Star Trek porno? I just looked at a little bit of the beginning of it, just to, and then I then I moved it to the middle to get to, you know, some idea of what was the action. Know. What they did. Yeah, the action or the cut action. Hmm. Or another but, killing engagement. I saw it. I saw it just before I was going to uh, get on Skype, but I had it on a different device than I was getting on Skype. So I was, I kind of had, was trying to get on Skype and waiting and waiting, and so I took a look at a couple things on there, but I didn't really get a chance to. Reasonably it, decent reconstruction of the bridge and the holodeck and and other things. Yeah, yeah. Like, how how long ago was that made? It looked like it was a while ago. Um, let's see, two thousand and eleven. Okay, not as long ago as I thought. Okay, I'm ready. Yeah, obviously the the person who wrote that and directed that like liked the show because there's like Leah Brahms shows up. <laughs> Like, Jordy needs help solving uh, some sort of puzzle and goes to the holodeck and Leo Brahms shows up. Like, that's something that the real Jordy would do. B- Picard, at the end, pulls out his flute when he went... Not yeah. a skin flute, either. Like, an actual flute. <laughs> so, when, wow. when he pulls it out, I'm like, oh, that's funny. Yeah. I, I remember years ago, I used to um, go into New York City, like, every day. And uh, when I was working there or when I was living there... And, um, like, the union office is right in Times Square, and and the Port Authority is, between Port Authority and union office is 42nd Street and 8th Avenue and all that. And in those days, everything was porn. The, all the theaters and everything were porn theaters. And you would walk down, and whatever was popular in popular, you know, entertainment, there would be some porn movie with a similar name made sexy you know um i can't think of any of them now but sometimes it was just fun walking down the street and reading these really ridiculous titles of these movies that uh uh i can't think of any of them but like well like flesh gordon and stuff you know <laughs> you, Funny. I, I don't know if you've seen flesh gordon but it's flash gordon you're saying flash gordon or flesh gordon flesh no flash gordon is the sci-fi yes flesh i know gordon. Flesh Gordon was a, and you can see it, some of it on YouTube, because um, I looked it up a while ago to t- because a friend of mine and I were talking about, you know, that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, Flesh Gordon. I remember a friend of mine took me to see that in a movie theater. and uh, I haven't seen either. Sorry. It, it was just, it's a really silly, silly pornographic version of Flash Gordon. And uh, you can look it up on YouTube. Or, should, um, yeah. I should start a podcast where we review um, porn parodies. <laughs> and then we can talk about Game of Bones <laughs> and the sequel Game of Bones 2, Winter Came Everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the Cosby, Cosby Show porn. Ew. That's, that's I don't want to see that. <laughs> that's the kind of thing that would be like on the marquees on 42nd Street, except... That it wouldn't be TV shows, it would be movies, you know. Whatever popular movie was, there would be some porn title version of it, you know, um, up within a short time. I, I, I always thought it was kind of funny, but 
<laughs> what can I yeah. maybe, maybe I can be yeah. I'm I'm up for doing a porn podcast. I'm up for it. <laughs> maybe we would have to use our porn names. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> hey, well, you know, oh my porn name is really terrible. <laughs> I can't remember what is. I can't remember all the different formulas they use for the different. It's like ones. your first pet's name with the first the first street you lived on. Okay. Well, it depends on whether you're considering my first pet as, as like when I was growing up, my parents, you know, dog, or whether it be the first one I owned. Either one, it doesn't not come out well. One would be Wait. Sunny Manor, and the other would be Missy Manor. Oh, I like those, Missy those Manor. Are, those are both good names. Yeah. Did My, you know that there's a um, a porn parody of the musical Hamilton? Of course there is. It's called, <laughs> it's called Hamilton, and it tells the story of one of America's greatest pounding fathers. <laughs> <laughs> it ends with a penis duel with Aaron Boner. Oh my god, no! <laughs> That's really great. Okay, I've decided we're doing this. <laughs> I'm being serious. Porn, porn has... has enjoyed playing with names forever it's one of i guess it's one of the things that makes it you know worthwhile to even think about but yeah <laughs> it's fun yeah i was just scrolling i was just scrolling through a message board while we were talking and one of the topics is why is there so much incest porn <laughs> yeah i that's that's a new thing lovely <laughs> that's one of those anyway Trixie gives birth <laughs> <laughs> yes let's go there how tall are you woman uh, five foot seven five foot seven I didn't know they stacked shit that high